feature is a child. I suggest you treat her as such. A child? Yes, Captain, a child. Evolving, learning, searching, instinctively needing. Needing what? Spock, this child is about to wipe out every living thing on Earth. Now, what do you suggest we do? Spank it. It knows only that it needs, Commander. But like so many of us, it does not know what. Do you expect me to talk? Welcome to episode 43 of Do You Expect Us to Talk? I'm Becca, your host, and joining me as always are Chris and Dave and Charlie. How are you doing? Hello, how are you? Good evening, folks. Good evening. Um, yeah, this week we are discussing Star Trek The Motion Picture, starring, as if you didn't know, William Shatner, Ned Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, Michelle Nichols, James Dewan, George Takei, oh my, Walter Koenig, <laughs> introduced Mrs. Kambata, and Stephen Collins for some reason. Um, well, they, Jerry Smith, they, Eugene, they would have had a character on cast if they hadn't. I released in 1979. Yeah, sure, they put it in for a reason. Stephen Collins, for some reason, <laughs> <laughs> they had to have someone playing. Be- Becca, can you, every, every, every time you announced uh, George Cake, and you were just adding the, oh my. Oh my. <laughs> I would have to get George on the show. I just think he's amazing. Yeah, but and you want everyone famous ever on this show. I would quite like it's to their get... film or not. Has anyone ever seen that uh, Comedy Central roast of uh, William Shatner? I have, and he's brilliant on it. <laughs> I got to see it. Takei's the best thing on it. Yeah, he is. Oh. He's an absolute... Just, just the, he's so funny. He's good. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? It's a rude word, but I can't say it on the podcast. <laughs> anyway, what do we reckon to this film? What's your, what's your memories of it? How did you come to it? What, oh, my memories... Uh, well, I remember it seen on TV, bits and parts. I mean, I'm like you, Becca. I, this, this is the first viewing I've had in terms of from start to finish. Uh, I've never sat down and watched it um, altogether. I've seen flashes on TV, so I've, I, I know it's like the kind of like the slower-paced Star Trek with the with the bowl chick, and it was a bit more like a natural uh, Star Trek episode, so to speak. Um, uh, and I, so I actually really enjoyed it, and I think I, I, I'm kind of mi- I'm kind of middling in my opinion. I can kind of like see both sides of the argument. Now, I think what what's happened with Motion picture, I think, is actually what what essentially what Star Trek is. It's a it's a good Star Trek episode that's been expanded into a feature length. It is a bit longer because it's stretching about over two hours, where it could have been it could have been shorter. I don't know why it's 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 as long as it is because I think they do over embellish like some of the sequences, but I think generally it looks great. I think the score's fantastic. Um, and I think, I, I, and I think it is true Star Trek. However, I do kind of see why some people won't necessarily take to it because it is very slow, um, slow paced, and like the other Star Trek films. But I think I can see why um, Charlie would would like it, uh, and, and and people who would probably agree with Charlie because it is very true to 
what Star Trek is. And it's basically a Star Trek episode with all the bells and whistles, as in, like, all special effects and scores. I think that's... I mean, I'll, I'll listen to what Charlie has to say anyway, so you might tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> but I, but generally, by, by my first viewing of it and what I understand Star Trek to be, um, this seems to be, like, a very, like, true to the format of Star Trek for the first century in the cinematic universe. I, I think it's a, a really... Um, I think it's a massive contradiction to this film. The, I'm sat looking at something that is at once the most cinematic of this cruise films and probably the most cinematic we'll get until maybe first contact in terms of look and so on but we spend so long and we'll go through the film scene by scene in a bit but we spend a lot of time putting the team together the band back together which has the feeling of a television pilot and we'll get onto all of that in a minute but i i had to look this up because i thought We'll talk about phase two in a moment before we go through the film. Um, but I thought this this was going to be a television episode. And I thought, surely it has to have been the first. And it was. It was the pilot. Um, but I'm looking... So it's at once the most cinematic, because it, it's the grandest in scale, but it's the most like a TV show. It's the most like the um, original Star Trek series in that it's got like a heavyweight theme and idea to it and it doesn't really go for action particularly. But it's also kind of the least like it because a, a lot of the sort of levity of this crew has been stripped away in a way that we, we, we get, we return to a bit more next week. But that's been over-exaggerated because there are scenes in this film that feel exactly like the TV show and I'll point to them when I get to them. Um, it's at once quite a dense story, but it's actually very thin as well. They don't leave Space Dock till about... Well, they start leaving Space Dock at 35 minutes. Everything's quite a slow process in this film. It takes them about four minutes. Um, at once, It's at once kind of beautiful in that it's got some money thrown at it, but it's also very drab in its colour scheme. Don't generally like the uniforms very much in this. They're not a deal-breaker. They're not something that really offend me, but I prefer what's coming in subsequent weeks. Um, it's, Shatner's a better actor than he was during the TV series, in my opinion. But Kirk's a bit of a dick in this, and we'll get to it. Um, so a very, very mixed bag. But I will say that having watched it less casually this time and really put some effort and concentration to it, I've had a better time with it than, than I've ever had before. And I've always got a skeleton ranking when I start a series and this is no different, and I think the motion picture is going to go up my rankings a little bit, judged on what I saw today. Charlie, it's not bad, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, um, it's it is definitely a, a contradiction, and you can see there the uh, the, the parts that were from the, the phase two pilot, and all the kind of trappings of starting off a series, which eventually kind of works in its favour because it is does set up a series in terms of the film franchise. Um, but I feel that because of the story and the nature of the story, it tends to kind of elevate that material a bit. And because it is kind of, like you say, a lot of the more philosophical parts of Star Trek, together with something a bit more inspired with from uh, 2001 and those kind of films rather than um, some of Star Trek and because of that that's why it has this kind of really unique feeling to it and it's not something where there's a villain and you have to go blow they have to go and blow something up and save the day in that way that it's is all a good about, thing and it's yeah exactly 
Yeah. And uh, obviously that became a formula for Star Trek films later on. So, it, yeah, because of that, it doesn't have the action that some people have come to expect from Star Trek films. Um, but the way it kind of uses the different themes, and like you said, Captain Kirk being a dick, he is a dick in this film. There are reasons behind that. So um, the same way that Spock has a different a potential different agenda as well. And that's one of the things I like about the film is it's not afraid to look at our heroes and our idols and to deconstruct them and look at them to say, are they perfect? Are they flawless? What I don't, exactly I, I don't do necessarily think it's a problem with Kirk, actually. Uh, I'm kind of in agreement that it's not necessarily to the film's detriment. It's not yeah. what you're expecting to see. I think no. it's kind of with Spock, but we'll get it. And, and again, it's it's more to do with the structure of the film. Yeah. Um, because really, if you if you if you took out the TV trappings and did a rewrite on this, I think it would almost be a dual storyline. Yeah. And I think it's kind of half Spock's story as well. Oh yeah. And I mean, yeah, he's, a... he's 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 omitted from it for quite a while. And I don't think if you were starting this from scratch rather than adapting a TV show, that perhaps. It doesn't matter because Spock, well, well, Spock wasn't even in the TV pilot. Exactly, but, yeah. But, yeah, it, it's a bit of a mess. We, we will come on to um, the structure of it in a minute. But yeah. um, I can see now, I, I finally get this film, I think would be my headline on it. Mm. And just just to quick put on the on the, on the the colours of the film, yeah, yeah it, it's, it's very, obviously realistic isn't certainly a term I'd use um, <laughs> with something like Star Trek necessarily. But it always it started to kind of go that way and at least especially with this film tried to make tried to make something um a bit more in terms of very similitude as richard donner said on his superman film about in that universe and especially where where the original star trek you in that era the the, the mid mid late 60s color television was coming in Television obviously had been black and white before then. Colour was coming in, so you had all these big primary colours that were used in that show. The three, all the all the divisions done by colour. Yeah, so because of Robert Wise and the kind of director he was, I think he wanted to put his own kind of realistic stamp on on Star Trek as well. And that is maybe a uh, an idea for the uh, the kind of look of the film. Um, and it's interesting. I like the ambition of the film. I think the other thing that makes it seem like a bit of an outlier is not only does it look different from all the other films, partly uniforms, partly partly just uh, style in general. We go a bit more sort of uh, naval next week. But um, I, I think also the, the odd thing about this film, and it's, it's sort of revealed through dialogue, that it's only two and a half years after the end of the five-year mission. Mm. So we've yeah. got we, we've got to the end of the five years, which we were if it was in linear time three years through. So we're, we're technically about four years on from the TV series, yet yeah, a decade's gone by. Um, whereas in the next film, the next film is set, set 12 years after this one, and it never references it again. So that makes it a bit of an outlier. They allowed the, the, the cast to age after this, which is quite important when you look at the themes next week. Becca, what did you make of it? I quite enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I had not seen this before, so uh, apologies to any you know real fans of it. Um, I'm Why the do you owe anyone an apology for not having seen it? 
Well, no, it's just because I mean, we might have some hardcore fans, and they'll go, "What? Rah, have you never, you know?" It's just one of those things. I'll be honest. Like, if, if someone's going to get angry over someone who's not seen a film before, then fuck them. Quite frankly, <laughs> you know, you, you be you be you being at being irrationally angry about something that doesn't even concern you. No. <laughs> Unless you're doing your top seven films on Twitter, of course. Oh, yeah, oh really? It, it didn't feature in there at it all. Get, yeah, I mean, it can get a bit nasty, and I, I know that. I mean, I've already had people come back on things I said in the intro episode, but not nastily. Thankfully, it was our our listeners who were gen- generally very nice. But you yeah. haven't seen it, so what? What did you think on of it as a first time viewer? Um, yeah, I quite enjoyed it. I thought for a film that's called the Mission Picture, there's not actually a lot of motion in it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> No, no, it was, um, yeah, because I, I was doing a bit of reading and obviously this is part, part of what would have been originally like a, a TV pilot and it's, 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 it's a t- you know, it's a TV episode spun out to two hours, but, you know, with, with the... And yet the, totally um, not shot like one. No, it's not. It doesn't look like one at all, but it's, it's got the film, the TV episode with a film sure, budget. Sure. Yeah. Um, the the decker um relationship I found very distracting. Um, but anyway... <laughs> it, 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 it did feel very like... It, like it was just put in just for the sake of yeah just literally just so they could get in get into you know find it's, out what video actually was it's like it, well it doesn't it, it's, 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 like, it's like you know when you watch like a t like a tv program and you got you, you cast regulars and then all, all suddenly they they like they pop up like, random like a couple of, a couple of characters out of nowhere who seems you're never gonna see them again yeah you know like, oh well they're gonna be prominent they're they, either they're gonna like end up dying or also, or you know, at the end of the series, because they give him some sort of importance, so they did feel very much yeah. like that. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, a bit kind of like shoehorned in randomly. Yeah. Um, no, I quite like. I mean, the effects obviously get kind of, der- you know, derided, but I think they're quite clever. Um, obviously, for the time. I don't think um, this is the film to deride effects-wise in this series at all. Yeah, I'd be, I'd question anyone who would deride the effects. Um, no, no, but it's, 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 mean, it's uh, a, a tricky friend of mine. He's kind of he's quite I mean, up on like visual effects. Was, and he goes, oh, terrible. The, the, like, there are a few fine. moments where I thought, "Oh, that looks dated now." I mean, I think generally I thought it, it looked it looks great even now, but I think there are sort of a few moments where I thought, "Oh, that looks a bit dated." But even so, I never judge. Like a film with dated special effects when it's oh, like. But I also no, think, it's, I think it's, a matter, no. it's a matter of preference as well because the thing that looks dated to me is actually the warp effect. But yes. that isn't so much that it's dated or crap, it's just that it is different and I suppose of its time. So, yes, it is a bit dated. You can imagine, like, back then watching it, it'll probably look great, you know what I mean? We've like, never oh, seen it before. Blowing. Bear in no. mind, we didn't have the next generation at this point. We've never seen a warp effect at all. No, exactly. So, as a first go, it's fine. And frankly, when we get to Star Trek V, like or hate the film, we'll see something with a skinny budget where they've got to do effects they can't afford. We're going to see shots reused as early as next week. Uh, oh. This is film to knock effects wise, in my opinion. And also, it's also the fact that this film went out unfinished. Yes. Yeah, pa- over budget. Paramount, yeah, Paramount gave it a ridiculous uh, tight schedule um, for uh, for post production, especially. So the uh, the sound mix went out unfinished. The uh, some of the effects went out unfinished, and that's one of the reasons that they did a uh, a director's edition, so called. Um, in 2001, so what, 22 years later? Yeah. So what, what, yeah. Was, what was different um, in comparison to the, the, the new, like, the director's cut, so to speak? It's I imagine it's longer, lo- isn't it? It is, it is a little longer. It's got, um, uh, certainly when they're flying through Vija, they, they've added even more to that. But a lot of it is visual effects. A, a lot of it is, I mean, you can tell which one you're watching immediately because 
uh, when the credits come up at the start, they're white on black. In the director's cut, they're yellow on Starfield. When you then go to Vulcan, it, he's kind of got a Starfield sky behind him. In the director's cut, they put like a yellower sky in what we're more used to. And these CG kind of statues and things as well. Yeah, there's, there, I, I, a lot of people say, oh, it makes it a much better film. I'm not, I'm not really convinced, to be honest with you. I don't think no. it's that much of a difference. Because they, they cut some scenes down as well and cut some dialogue and a couple of scenes out as well, which I kind of didn't really like. And... Um, Added some kind of a few shots of a few more shots of San Francisco with all the shuttles kind of going around and stuff. Mm. And like you said, I, I didn't even I didn't like the uh, the, the cheesy uh, titles either. I thought the the white on black was a, a lot more effective than the the kind of cheesy gold kind of. You, you can just, almost just, tell it's a prestige, but it, it's a bit like if Woody Allen had directed a Star Trek film, the title yeah. at wow. the start. But it's I very, mean um, that would have been a completely different film altogether. It, it's very. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I will say that there was one visual effect that, as again, I think is probably a result of it being not finished, that never works for me at all. Um, that they did replace in the uh, in the new version, which was a when they actually the four of them walk off the ship at the end, and it's a matte painting yeah. um, of the Enterprise dish, which is very just the, the, it's completely out of perspective, and it's very just doesn't work at all. Um, whereas, but in, in the new one, it's very obviously CGI as well. Mm. So, because yeah, having, it, having yeah. said that, I do actually quite like the effects. I'm not, I'm not deriding the effects or anything no, in no, any no, way. I, I do actually, I'm quite impressed by the effects at Beautiful. the time. Like, yeah, really stunning. I quite enjoyed them to be honest. Um, yes, yeah, the main um, things I've sort of had the issue with maybe like the pacing. There are some script things like bones. I need you now, and it's just like oh, dear. you know. <laughs> but apart from that, no, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I'm looking yeah, forward to bizarre, it. That's bizarre because in the director's cut you get an extra bit of dialogue from someone explaining that Bones refused to get on the transporter pad. Mm. Well, right. Ohura's pretty much just told Kirk that on the bridge. So it, it is a bit like the Greedo syndrome that we've just seen a scene with Greedo in Star Wars and then we get the same information from Jabba himself just to force in that scene. So it's like and repeating I, yourself kind it's of thing. It's just repeating yeah. information you've just been given. To be honest with you, I, I mean, I, I've had people say to me that... Um, the effect and look of Vija in the theatrical, you know, it wasn't very good and it's vastly improved. Just don't agree. I just don't agree at all. No. The whole point is you're not supposed to know what Vija is. You're not even supposed to know the term Vija till quite late in the film. The idea that it's just this blue cloud is is actually actually suits the story. It's meant to yeah. be a mystery, isn't it? It's like meant to be yeah, like it's got a the... mystery surrounding it. Charlie, should we talk a little bit about the sort of how we ended up with this film in 1979 and some of the challenges it met, it faced. Yeah, well, as I don't know how many people really know outside of Star Trek fans, that originally what they wanted to do was make a uh, a TV series. I think they kind of dilly dallied between it a film and a TV a series it, a few it times. As a yeah, Roddenberry draft. On yeah, a film where you know Kirk has a fist fight with Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Of God, <laughs> and um, so they, uh, um, which they will visit in uh, later on, and <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, so they eventually did a uh, started to make a series called Star Trek Phase Two, um, and uh, as an offshoot and a sequel to the original series. So it was kind of in the middle of that. So it had kind of like the old costumes and things like that, and the Enterprise was in a kind of 
halfway phase between the one we see in this film and the one in the original series. Um, Leonard Nimoy did not want to return, so he was replaced by a different actor who played a Vulcan, and that actor himself is in the film, yeah, yeah. Uh, very briefly. But he's not the Vulcan. No, no, no. No. Um, and, uh, so, and yeah, Persis Kambata coming in um, as Ilea. Um So it was supposed to be a whole new thing, and they had several kind of looks at um, redesigning it all. And uh, at one point you had Ralph Macquarie, who did all the just work for Star Wars, all the concept art, doing designs. Um, when That's it was, when it was first a film. That's when yeah. it was going to be Planet of the yeah. Titans. And, where uh, um, the Enterprise almost kicked off society as we know it, in that they were there at the sort of birth of fire yeah. and things like that. It's, it's really, it would have been odd, certainly. But I, um, I, I love those ideas. Those kind of concepts. great idea, though. Yeah. Yeah, and um, interestingly, the the kind of Ralph Macquarie design for the Enterprise was very different. Um, is actually what they're using for Discovery. The basis um, of it, yeah, because it's got a yeah. triangular secondary hole. Yeah. But the, um, the the so the the pilot for Phase One was called In Thy Image, and uh, was written by a guy called Alan Dean Foster, who a lot of kind of nerds will know as someone who's doing a lot of novelizations of films. Like he did like the Alien series and things like that, and a lot of other um, tie-in novelizations, and is kind of regarded as the king of those. That, that genre. He also um, did a book called Splinter in the Mind's Eye, which yeah. was a Star Wars book that effectively, if Star Wars had been had been a flop, it was talked about as it would have been the basis of a cheapo sort of second film yeah. rather than what we got. So, yeah, Alan Dean Foster, very, very active in this sort of genre. Yeah, he actually wrote the original Star Wars novelization, but that was credited to George Lucas. Yes. Really? They must have realised when it wasn't written in shit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the (laughs) so, but actually, when when the motion picture was coming out, uh, Andy Foster actually got credit on the film um, with the uh, original writer who who wrote the film, Harold Livingston, and also um, Gene Roddenberry asked for a credit and didn't get it. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, I've just been reading, uh, I think I mentioned it last week, I've just been reading um, the 50-year mission book. It's a two-part book, and only part one is out until the end of this month. And the first part is is more or less the original crew right the way through, and including the films. And there's a lot of talk around the motion picture and how it was made and everything else, which we could go into. And, and certainly there's shades of grey in the argument, because I've always believed as Charlie... Uh, as Charlie said, that Spock didn't, uh, Leonard Nimoy didn't want to return as Spock. Leonard Nimoy sort of argues with that, but they did have a falling out over royalties, and there was talk that Roddenberry only wrote him into two two of the first eleven episodes, and it, it's all a lot of he said, she said. But um, certainly during this image, every, at this uh, ter- certainly during this period, everything that Roddenberry wrote, the sort of studio did not like. So he was heavily rewritten in in every single case. Was that Although because apparently, because it's uh, Roddenberry, he doesn't sort of like much drama, so to speak. It doesn't. Like, I believe to. it was Jeffrey Katzenberg who now runs obviously DreamWorks, 
He had a script. He had two scripts in his hands. One was Rod and Breeze, and he described Rod and Breeze as television. Ah, uh, okay. I mean, I think it is one of the the, the, the criticisms for this film was it is essentially it is just like a TV show, but just glorified on, 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 on a, as a film, really. Yes, it's I the mean, most cinematic of this crew. That's what I'm saying about yeah. massive contradictions. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, it is. I mean, I agree with it. I think the the problems of it is generally in the script. I mean, you can you can kind of tell it's like. The script yeah. is very televisual, being right down to the very end of the film, where it's like they they resolve the conflict, and it's pretty much like ends like straight away. Right, well, let's get let's get going then. Straight on, yeah. Go, it's like, yeah, it's literally like with a little bit of repartee, you know. Yeah. Like I said, the jokes on yeah, you. Yeah, just like just like the TV show. Does. Yeah, um, I mean, it's the the other thing. I, the, I think the other thing we've got to nail quite quickly is the fact that um, this is this painted as having a massive budget. Forty-six million dollars. Which, bear in mind, Moonraker the same year, hugely lavish at twenty-eight. And that ended two, years, up. two years earlier, Star Wars was budgeted at five and came in at about eight. What you got to remember is it's a bit like Superman Returns a couple of decades later, that it's carrying all the costs of the sort of aborted versions that preceded it. So, they built all the sets for the TV show. Far too low resolution for films. They had a nearly finished model of the Enterprise, not detailed enough for films. So that model ended up getting used in Star Trek Three, funnily enough. But they had to redo everything several times. And when you think how many writers contributed to this and the development cost of TV series and everything else, plus the fact that the whole thing went over about a four-year period, it's quite easy to see how costs got out of control here. Because this isn't for what's on screen. This is not a forty-six million dollar film. How well did it actually get received then? Like, was it, did it was, was was it have its fans or was it like was it kind of panned at the time? Did it do well at the box office? Well, I'll let Charlie answer that in a minute. But in terms of in terms of the crew, i.e., the actors, I think it's fair to say they were disappointed. Nimoy, Shatner, um, and Walter Koenig have been the people who've spoken most about it. They were all disappointed with the end result. Financially, it did $139 million, which compared to the average Star Trek take is pretty good. But as I say, $46 million film and Moonraker the same year took 210. So, and start, you know, Superman the movie, the following previous Christmas took 300. So it's not a wild success. Charlie, what do you know about sort of a critical reaction to the film? Yeah, they didn't really like it much. Yeah, it's the, the, I think the, the usual things a lot of people say that it's quite dull and flat and uh, very much... It's a cold film because it is a rather cold film initially um, and it, it takes a while for everything to kind of come together. Um, so and, I, and that's really kind of... It's it's never really had a good reputation, and, and arguably it kind of to have it and the wrath of Khan um, started the uh, the whole myth of the odd numbered curse. Yeah, there is a theory, and what made me laugh is if you go and watch Spaced, you can hear Simon Pegg say it that you know all the all the odd, and, and of course he's 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 been in odd numbered Star Trek films. Now. <laughs> Because um, it does he's to blame, really. You could say he's part part of the reason why that's kind of now reversed now. Now, now, now that since JJ's yes. rebooted it, yeah, it's can. gone. It's flipped. Yeah, so. If you look at if you look at the original crew, well, let's look at the first the original crew films. I think two, four, and six have a better reputation than one, three, and five. So there's some validity to it, I suppose. 
But two, three, and four, although they vary a bit in quality, they are all part of the one same story, really. And when you look at um, the next generation films, well, they only did four. The last two aren't brilliant, full stop. First Contact is wildly overrated. Um, I, I think it's. I think there's some validity to it, but to uh, to pretend all the even numbered ones are great and all the odd numbered ones is crap is a bit simplistic. Yes, very much. So. Yeah, it's a bit too much. It's not always as smooth as that. I think. I think reason for the. I think uh, for the motion picture, it's not necessarily like the one that's most palatable for widespread audience. So I mean, I, I, this strikes me more as like something that more like fans of Star Trek will more appreciate more. Rather than like the general audiences who are not necessarily acquainted with Star Trek. Well, that's it. You look at especially Star Trek Four and First Contact, which are arguably the two most um, generally favorably reacted. Outside, outside of yeah, I mean yeah, two is normally regarded as the best, but four and eight tend to be favorites yeah. outside because, of the fan base. Because they're both time travel stories. They're both exactly the same thing, really. Fish out of water stories where they have to go back to a future, to the past, which vaguely um, re- resembles the uh, what it was at the time or something approximating a tiny bit in the future. So things that we relate to as a culture instead of all the normal Star Trek techno babble and all that kind of thing. Um, and of course, the viewer has, you know, surrogates within the cast that are having to exactly. see, uh, have it explained to them. You don't have to worry about the dense lore of Star Trek because most of it isn't there because they're not in their normal time. And those bits that are relevant, our main characters have to explain to the newbies. So, uh, I, I mean, I, I certainly think, I think two, four, and six as an average standard are better than one, three, and five. If you just looked at it that way. But on an in- and they are the and they are the beloved ones. In terms of the original crew, that that rule does kind of vaguely stand, really, doesn't it? Vague, yeah, vaguely. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. the point. I, I mean, like I think... even Raph Khan, which is which I think we all agree is probably the the, the best Star Trek film, anyway. You know, yeah. I mean, there's, there's other reasons why it is considered, considered the best, but the reason, but the primary reason why everyone kind of likes it or why everyone why it's kind of popular is just because everyone loves a good revenge story. You know. It's quite. It's very popular. Everyone understands. Where you know, even if, even for me, who like saw Rafa Khan way before Spacey, you know, you you know, you understand the fact that oh, this Khan guy, he's a bit of a badass and he's pissed. He's out to get good. It, it's instantly more palatable. Chris, this film's uh, preaching to the converted. That's the problem. Yeah. That, I mean, I, I don't know. In retrospect, I don't know what they were thinking, because they've spent so long with putting the band back together. And we're supposed to have some nostalgia, almost, for this team being brought together at last. Well, if that's not aimed at people that originally watched Star Trek, I don't know what is. What you know, and I think you're limiting your audience with that sort of thing. I, I guess, and I don't, I don't really know because back then, I mean, I'm, I, you know, I don't, I don't know what the vibe was for Star Trek, mm. um, but I, 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 I imagine they were just, it was more like a, they just, they didn't really know any better to figure well, well well let's take star trek and make it a picture and that's literally what they did i i don't know i i mean i don't know for certain because i i wasn't i certainly wasn't old enough to remember i was around when this yeah. game came out but i i don't remember obviously i was very very young but i think some of it is what we get with comic-con these days uh snakes on a plane turned 10 years old a couple of days ago 
and within the bubble of the internet and places like Comic-Con, this was going to be an unprecedented smash. And then it came out, did all right. And I think, you know, it didn't do that well because, frankly, all the noise was being made within the same community of people. Well, it didn't have much and, to sell other than the fact that it got Samuel Jackson saying that line. Well, that it was, was just a gimmick. Yeah. But I'm, I'm not likening this to Snakes on a Plane. Yeah. Trust me, folks, this is better than Snakes on a Plane. But I think Star Trek had definitely grown, or there was a perception it had grown since it had been cancelled. Because it had been cancelled for not being popular enough. But since then, conventions have become a huge thing. And so all the cast and Roddenberry and people like that were going all around the country and world, I imagine, being fated wherever they went. And it probably gives the impression there's a bigger market for this stuff than there actually is. But one thing I will say is we might say, well, the, the thing takes off next week. This significantly outgrows the wrath of Khan. Yeah, the, the, the thing is as well is I think there's kind of a myth as well behind Star Trek as this huge, massive thing that's always been there. I mean, so at the end of Star Trek Season 2, it was cancelled. And basically, the fans fans of Star Trek got together and wrote into um, NBC and whoever um, and said, please bring Star Trek back. Um, They did bring it back. Um, it had a smaller budget, and uh, and it was on at 10 p.m. on a Friday. Exactly, and uh, a lot of the uh, episodes um, are uh, considered sure. some of the worst. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, Spock's brain's so, not the worst episode of that series. That tells you everything. Um, and then, so then it was cancelled again, and then, like Dave said, you had these fan conventions, but also at the same time, from that, you've got other things. You've got Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes was a huge success for what it was. And you look, that had five sequels between, what, 1968 when the first one came out and Battle of the Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then you had, obviously, Star Wars as well. And Star Wars was the big thing where you kind of, Paramount kind of finally took notice and thought, okay, we need something like that. Because everyone was kind yeah, of scrambling. That's part so. of how it became a film. Um, yeah. it, it's only part. The, the second part is not for the first or last time, and we'll talk about it later in the series. The series, Phase 2, was meant to start a new television network. Yeah. Paramount was going to launch a television network with it, and that all fell through. But it fell through around the same time that stuff like Close Encounters and Star, and Star Wars was doing massive money. Exactly. And then, so then you had... You had Paramount do Star Trek, you had Disney do the Black Hole, you had Universal do Battlestar Galactica and all these kind of things and you obviously you have Moonraker as well um, so everyone was wanting to do the, lots of space adventures um, and certainly yeah, with the built in audience that Paramount had that had been building like, like Dave said from all the conventions and things like that um, and uh, and certainly the way that that Star Trek had from its reruns and syndi- and syndication that was that made uh, the next generation so much a success as well. Then you had kind of something that we thought, okay, let's let's give this a shot. We think we'll have something here. Um, and yeah, it, it didn't make a massive amount of money, but it it kind of made enough to start. Make good money. Yeah, exactly. It made good money at the time. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting how. 
we nowadays um, look at the we're, we're so focused especially with all the information that's there on the internet about what the budget is a film what the marketing budget is of a film and how that all stands up compared to the uh, the final um the final box office and we're told that film can't actually be considered a success unless it makes its money back three or four times and things like this and everything is so focused on all these people out there telling us about box office box office box office um as if it's all down to these tiny little fractions whereas back then it was just like this made a shitload of money so it was considered successful instead of okay well this made this amount of money but it didn't make that amount of money so it can only be it can still be classed as a failure which is uh the very kind of cynical way that hollywood and the internet kind of looks at things there is a difference between the way that the studio reacted to this and its performance and the way that the studio is now reacting to these films and i think it's much more responsible because yeah. the first film came out uh, sorry the, when i say the first film i mean the first reboot i'm talking about the modern era the jj abrams film came out and it did well it didn't do amazing i mean this you put it next to star wars not only are they not the same genre but they're not remotely the same level of popularity and never have been no star wars is much much bigger than star trek it's much more accessible than star trek in a lot of ways um and this series is hand to mouth it's going to be a harder series to rank than bond because the films vary so much i mean they really do they're, they're all so different from each other and yet even though there are similarities wasn't wasn't um, it true that Roddenberry like really hated Star Wars as well? Because apparently, obviously, obviously, this is like a very sci-fi movie, but whereas Star Wars obviously yeah. very inherently fantasy. Well, he, he thought there wasn't enough sci, there wasn't enough sci-fi in it. Well, oh, that's a misreading of the situation because it's not intending to be sci-fi. No, but um, it's more kind of space western fantasy. this film desperately wants to be two thousand and one, so it, it does it can come off. It a really bit does. I got a real got real two thousand and one vibe from it. Although, having said that, when they're going through the world, we'll, we'll hold that for when we talk about the film sequence. Yeah, we'll talk about it when we get there. Um, but certainly, the, now, they threw, having had a sort of failure, not a failure, but the first film did well, but it didn't do amazing. And I'm talking about the reboots. So they then come with Into Darkness and throw like 200 million at it, really hoping that they can get like, a fast franchise in terms of size that maybe the next one will do six or seven and then eventually they can work to a billion and of course it does not quite as well as the first one so beyond comes out with a 185 million budget and again they're chasing these massive returns and stubbornly the series is refusing to do much more than 200 and something and i think their reaction to underperformance now in their minds, is to throw more money at it to see if they can get the end gross up. Whereas their reaction to this was to cut the cost. This made decent money, but we spent 46 million on it. So let's see if we can make one for like 10 or 15. And I think that's a much more responsible way to go about it. And I think the films are becoming these sort of effects jizz fests that they don't need to be. Like temple cinema just like literally propping the studio that's, up pretty much that's that's the thing i mean these um star trek films have never made that much money at all i mean i'm I just looking it's I, I, I think it's interesting compared to like star wars and things like that they yeah. historically i mean they've done okay but they never made bajillions and squillions or whatever the box office have they i think yeah. that's, that's quite interesting i think to look at that's the thing i mean i mean i'm looking at um the adjusted 
uh, ranking on Box Office Mojo right now of, of all these films. Number one is Star Trek The J.J. Abrams Reboot. The first one, yeah. With $299 million. The second one is Star Trek The Motion Picture with right. two hundred with two hundred and eighty three million. And then Star Trek Voyage Home, Star Trek Into Darkness, Star Trek The Wrath of Khan. Um so I mean so looking at it again, Star Trek First Contact on this list only made I say only ninety two million, which isn't only really massive really. Normally and, when they're adjusted lists, this is probably the North American box office, isn't it? Yeah, this is um That's yeah, not worldwide, but even then we're not looking at massive. Well no, I mean yeah, worldwide. Yeah. Um, I mean, could, could one of the problems be you're dealing with essentially a TV cast as well? I mean, excluding the new ones, but you are dealing with like well, a TV crew, maybe. Yeah. Stars were stars were. I mean, there was certainly a time, even in my lifetime, where films were opened by a name. You went to see the new Eddie Murphy film or whatever. Yeah. I think, but then Star Wars had no real big stars in it, so not really. I mean, I do wonder if Star Wars Trek is just seen as a bit niche. I think even now, with the jazzed-up effects, do people really want to be going to see Star Trek? You, I don't know. You could argue that Star Wars made them names. I mean, I think like, Star Wars is one of those films which is just like, it comes out of the blue. It's like, it's not, you can't always bank on something like Star Wars I think Wars it happening. was the, yeah, it was the exception back then, you know. You you went to see the new Burt Reynolds or Clint Eastwood film. If you want to guarantee a hit, you have to like cement some sort of star in, 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 in like in there somewhere, as well as like everything else. Uh, generally speaking, but I think well, especially when it comes to like the next generation. I mean, okay, you got Patrick Stewart, but I think Patrick Stewart now didn't mean didn't have the same cachet as. Patrick Stewart back then because he was primarily seen as a TV actor because he was in Star Trek. So he wouldn't have the same sort of draw, I think, would he? So essentially, what what you're doing is you're just going like literally putting like the TV on screen, which is which is what it is. But that doesn't say have the same draw as say like having like you know Tom Cruise or whoever on you know bit telling your movie. And also, it's Star Trek. Star Trek has always carried that stigma. And even, even I mean, that's because obviously you see, you look at Star Trek, the, the Abrams reboot, which is very much more in the Star Wars mold, um, and um, which desperately tried to reinvent the brand. And given the money it made, I suppose it was significant, but you don't see it kind of transcending as Star Wars did. Or as something like send this, say the Matrix did. You've, Star Trek is still got that thing in the back of my mind where people see that and they think of people at conventions with pointy ears, and um, which is a horrible thing. And I hate that. And I hate that. You know that there's still this kind of, especially since we're. Um, but you could say the same thing about Star Wars. I mean, like, you know, like Yoda is or... Like, you couldn't, or... though. Star Wars has always no, been but... the cooler brother. Because, because Star because Wars it's, just... If it speaks it's more, kind of nerdy. It's, it's... An absolute smash. Yeah, it speaks more populist, but it still has that nerd kind of culture. Yeah, I mean, there is some, yes. yeah. yeah, I mean, it has changed a little. There's no doubt that, like, nerd culture is culture now. It's the mainstream. And the prequels but, had a lot But, of but the fact is, there are still subsets within it that are, like, laughed at. Hence, you know, Dungeons and Dragons will never be cool. I still think you, you've got a massive dichotomy between like geek culture and nerd culture, and obviously geeks being the thing that's that's cool and it's acceptable to be a geek, but to be a nerd, I think, is, is probably like a, a higher level of um, 
of you know being, being into something being interested it's still kind of got a bit of a reputation in, in, in that respect and i think that's why that's why star trek suffers well, things can always change though i mean like you, you know, like I, I imagine there was a day day when like reading comic books was deemed as like really nerdy and like uncool and unpopular now it's like the most popular thing in the world now you know. Yeah, I mean, there yeah, are yeah, stories. We'll, well, there are stories we'll get to um, down the line on different series where films weren't getting made because comic books were, films were seen as so risky. Yeah, and like that's the funniest thing in the world now. Um, and again, I've mentioned the Fast franchise a couple of times. That was very niche. I mean, I, I didn't want to go and see a friend of mine. We've got this sort of rule that basically, if one of us wants to go and see something, the other one has to. We can moan about it all we like, but we can go. And he wanted to go and see Fast 6, and I hadn't seen any of them. I'd seen a trailer for, like, the earlier ones. And it just looked so fucking meat-headed. And it, it just... <laughs> uh, hang on a minute, though. I went to see it, and I walked in, and I saw, you know, I basically saw a sea of, like, crew cuts and tattoos. <laughs> and I thought, oh, fuck, this is not my thing. And I sat down and loved it. Ended up seeing it a second time. Ended up getting the box set. Which was oh. a shock. Which was one to five. Which was a shocker because I didn't like any of them till I got to five. <laughs> yeah, it, it does totally shift. Like, that series has completely reinvented itself, and it's and it's grown its fan base, and it's now mainstream and a lot of fun. And you can look at it and say, you know, it's dumb or it's whatever. But the fact is, it's fun and it's mainstream. Where it was just kind of for like petrol heads when it first came out. Yeah, exactly. It's like even, even if you want it to cars, you can enjoy time. other aspects of it. I, I do wonder as well whether the Netflix series will, will do something for it, because there's a cachet around Netflix at the moment like there was around HBO a few years ago. Yeah, so, absolutely. It's coming to its own now, isn't it? And Brian Fuller as well. I mean, I, I mean, I must admit, I am concerned with the fact that they're just basically doing, like, um, Enterprise again, because it's, it's, like, set just before Kirk. Uh, it's, it's, it, uh, Enterprise was 100 years before, over 100 years before Kirk. This is this is a decade. Have you have you heard what they're actually doing with it with the Klingons? No. We remember we, in the, in the uh, yeah because in the last episode we were talking about it was supposed to be set in an event before which is like apparently this is right in the middle of the Klingon wars. Mm-hmm. Um, so that'll give it a different kind of. I don't worry. What I don't think Brian Fuller would do because I think he's far too intelligent to do. Yeah. Is do a series that's all about filling in the gaps. Like yeah. Enterprise was that. Let's explain this thing and let's make a little visual precursor to that. This will tell its own story, and I don't think it's going to be hamstrung by we've got to be here by this time. I think it will tell its own story, and I'm I'm not I'm really not concerned about it. If it keeps itself separate from everything else, I think it'll be fine. I mean, I, I generally I think I've heard a few fans speak about they prefer the new series to kind of go just beyond like voyager or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah I, I get that but uh, the fact is i i don't worry about its time period as affecting what they tell when enterprise came along i did because the show was so safe back then that i thought i thought what actually ended up happening that we we'd, we'd get loads of silly explanations <laughs> for things we didn't need explanations to you may get the odd nod here and there because bear in mind if this is 10 years before the Enterprise we know, the characters we knew from that Enterprise are largely out there on other ships as lieutenants and stuff like that. So they may come across them one way or another. But, I mean, if they cross the Enterprise at this point, it's being captained by Pike. 
The thing is, as well, is that Star Wars put a very, very negative slant on the word prequel. Yeah. I think that the problem with, I mean, not only were the films shit, but they literally came up to a predetermined finish line. Yeah. The, the The whole film series was noodling around until we can get to the birth of Vader, and then it was all done credits. And that's not what this series is going to be. It, it is not there to get us to Kirk, Spock and McCoy, I don't think. No. I, I, I agree with that, but I'm just trying to think of actually when was the case of like a prequel actually being good before Star Trek? I mean, sorry, Star Wars. Um, I'm just struggling to think of like a good case for prequels and themselves have actually been beneficial. Because they aren't, yeah, but they aren't largely done, are they? No. Indiana yeah. Jones the Temple of Doom. Yeah, well. which we weren't very kind to, to be fair, Charlie. <laughs> which, which I well, you were. <laughs> well, go back and listen to that episode and learn. No, <laughs> we, weren't, we, weren't, we weren't horrible to it, but we weren't that kind either. I mean, well, um, well, te- well technically, I don't know even why it's a prequel. It doesn't really matter. That it's, you know, it's, it's, it's only technically a prequel. It's not really. Yes, it is. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Again, no, it's it, not. it doesn't finish with him walking into his office ready to talk to somebody about the art. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's what, you know. <laughs> and again, it's all... It, it, the way the prequels ended up being for Star Wars, a prequel in that field, you you would have had what you ended up with in Last Crusade. It would have been the first time he used the whip, or the first time he said a certain phrase, or something echoing with something you'll see later. I think this series is just going to run its own path. It will fill in some gaps, because the Star Trek of that era was making it up as it went along a little bit. So we'll learn a little bit of formality around what the Federation might have been then. But... I, it just it doesn't worry me that it's a prequel, because it isn't a prequel. It's a Star Trek series set in that timeline. Yeah, it's it's not a prequel to anything, because it's not leading us to Kirk. It would be a prequel if it was Kirk as a lieutenant on some other ship. It was like the Adventures of Young Kirk. Yeah, Kirk Junior. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we've gone off topic, folks. In terms of the motion picture, <laughs> shall we discuss this film sequentially? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so uh, where do we start off? We basically start off with a big. Um... Start off with the overture. Yeah. Oh yeah, that was a bit. That, that was the old thing. I quite like this. This is this is really good because obviously you got Robert Wise, who's like an old Hollywood kind of figure, obviously doing like Sound of Music, um, West Side Story, things like that. I just think that's amazing. You don't get a lot of films these days that start off with the massive musical overture like you would do in the sort of no. the Hollywood films of the forties, fifties, sixties. I just say it's a beautiful piece yeah. of music. I played it five times before I let the film run. Do you think it was more of a statement of intent to kind of let everyone know that, okay, yes, this is a TV series, this is a movie, this is going to be an experience? I, this I is an event film. I think it was possibly more Robert Wise doing what Robert Wise does. Mm. Okay. Because he's, he's a different... It, it, he's almost... Come, it, it's a bit like if Hitchcock had been around and making films in the 80s or something. It, Robert Wise is a little bit outside his peak era here. And it feels like a film that I, I wouldn't have been surprised with what we got if if this film had been directed by like David Lean. Yeah, it feels more quite epic, doesn't it, in scale? Whereas the yeah. sort of films I, that Wise is known is, for, it's yeah, quite a somber film. I think it is certainly a, a kind of a kind of statement about the, the uh, about the film as an event. Um, and I, I love it. And yeah, this is one of the, the, the last films to have an overture theatrically. I think the Black Hole was the last one up until The Hateful Eight from last year. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Um, 
yeah, quite. Uh, just off piece there, Black Hole is quite a favourite of mine because it's all Disney's first sci-fi movie. Mm, but um, yeah, yeah it'll be quite an amazing score. But anyway, yes. Oh, so oh, we and, get... oh, and also um, mentioning the Hateful Eight, this film was shot seventy millimeter as well. Yeah, mm. that's true. Which is rare. So yeah, they they threw some. They wanted this to be prestige. The music we hear here is largely um, sort of Decker and Ilya's music from later in the film. It's really yeah, nice. It's Ilya's theme. Do you, yeah. do you think that that's the core central um, of the theme of the film itself, with the the relationship between those two? I think that's more that's more telling, really. Or well, I think no, it's, I it's, just think it's a beautiful piece of music. Okay. Yeah, and it's 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 a a beautiful way to start it before the kind of very kind of bombastic way the actual film starts and the actual credits are. Um, I think it it definitely that that relationship I think is an integral part of the film. Um, but yeah, I think just in the way of, of the actual piece of music is a, a, a brilliant way of kind of getting you into the kind of the kind of the way the film treats space as this kind of romantic and lyrical kind of thing. Um, and then kind of you go there, go from that, and you go straight into the main titles, which then go straight onto the Klingon thing scene, and it's all very very bombastic for quite a long sequence. The main theme is is one that I never enjoyed when it was used on the next generation. No. It was all a bit much. I used to fall forward through it. I still do, because it's like, oh, it's assault in my senses. I'll oh, fuck off. I like it when it's used other ways in this, so, such as the scene with Kirk. We'll talk about in a little while. I like the music to this scene, but you asked a question on Twitter about themes earlier. Mm. I've always preferred next week's. But I think when I think about it, it's because I met, I preferred the main theme. And actually, the, the overall score, no. I think the overall score's better here. Yeah, it's, I, it's, I must have read that question then, because I kind of thought, like, for example, in like, the Bond movies, would you would you enjoy them better? So say like something like Skyfall or something that doesn't have as much of the Bond theme, would you enjoy it more? Um, so if like well, this one... Bond's a bad example, because you'll always hear the themes. What well, exactly. he was saying you, was it, is some films don't have recognisable themes like that. No, it's like, for example, this one. If you didn't hear Strains of the original Trek theme, would you appreciate it more or less? You hardly hear it. You hear it in a couple of places. Yeah, exactly. You hear it when they leave Space yeah. Dock and they're about to go to war. Yeah. Uh, Better thing. When... If, if you heard it more, would, would this yeah. perhaps raise the film's profile a little bit more if you heard it more? Oh, no, because it's got what's now no, an iconic theme of yeah. itself. No, exactly. it, it, does, it doesn't need it. It doesn't need it at all, no. Yeah, the the only the only thing that's really missing is the the fanfare. Yeah. The yes. original fanfare, which yeah. was kind of brought back in the uh, in the in the next film. But uh, I was alright with that though, because you normally get it over the Paramount logo. Mm. We've just had the overture. Yeah, it's, exactly. Yeah, it. it's, it's it's very different. But no, because there's a lot of different themes in this. Yeah. In in this score. It's a richer score than I realised because I've always been a little bit turned off by that main theme when it's mm. used that it's most bombastic. Yeah. I've never really liked it. I like the Which which I like Is it because it reminds you of generations itself, like the next generation? No, I don't think it's even used in that. Oh the next generation I love. Yeah. So it wouldn't be that it reminds me of that. It's it's more that it's just too bombastic for me. I just think but when when it's used alongside Kirk going up to the Enterprise in a while, I think it's gorgeous. So it is purely the fact that like I'll oh, tone it down a bit. I think I think the uh, the next generation arrangement as well, um, which wasn't done by Jerry Goldsmith, was yeah. was done by someone else, is it a is uh, and it's not Yeah, good. and it's a bit kind of 
tinny and kind of it doesn't feel as kind of full as in, and as embellished mm. um whereas when it kind of really gets going here and it's it's a very short credit sequence i mean i always laughed at the fact that you get um shatner McC- uh, kelly and nimoy and then all the other crew <laughs> on one credit yeah <laughs> all and in, then, in some and everybody yeah. else <laughs> and then suddenly it's i like, do think that's a microcosm of how this crew kind of I wonder if, if they were all I sat in the si- Late in the film, I was trying to remember if I'd heard George Takei speak. Yeah. I, I wonder if, if they were watching it in the film and when the credits up, Takei just went, oh my. Oh my. <laughs> someone someone went, oh, that's what your voice sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> he barely speaks in this. I mean, yeah, uh, he uh, have very many just lines, after I thought it, he said something and I was like, oh yeah, yeah, he does speak. Yeah. He, he, he says. He says some weird lines to Ilea, but I, I can't remember if they're cut from the uh, original edition and then restored. Cause what were they? You're not my type. Or... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because li- literally, because she cut, she comes on the uh, on the bridge and says, "My oath of celibacy is on record," because everyone kind of stares at her as if. Yeah, there's oh, but... a reason for that. That's not included in the film. Yeah, <laughs> no, there's and, some um... history between them, isn't there? Exactly. Well, part, yeah. part of it, I know you're going to cover in your fun facts later, Becca, because it's a precursor of something else. But also, that they are supposed to be like irresistible. They're meant to be a very sexual um, race, uh, and they're supposed to put like images in people's minds—not necessarily sexual images, but that's kind of how their foreplay works. And the, <gasps> the only reaction shot you get that tells you that is Chekhov's, because this woman who. I mean, I'm not saying bald women are inherently unattractive, but it's not in the zeitgeist as, particularly then, it would have been a lot more daring. And the idea yeah. that someone would go, oh, look at that stunner, I don't think that's what they were going for. They were telling us something that wasn't quite communicated in the film, that she yeah. has men under her thrall. Are they, are they all kind of bold? Are they all like, is that like the thing about their race? or I, is it I more... assume so, yeah. I assume so. We don't ever see them again. Have you seen them previously in the series? Or, I mean, again, there'll be people out there who know Star Trek better than any of us and, and might say, oh, no, they're in the background in next scene, but I don't it, recall It's just a thought, the thought that they might like shave their heads to make them less appealing, to kind of repress their sexuality somewhat. If that's Yeah, the... that's why I've put on several stone and started losing my hair, because it, <laughs> it was just getting too much. <laughs> According to Memory Alpha, which is the Star Trek Wikipedia, they're all bold. Okay. That's oh, okay. like that's like a species thing. Which has got eyebrows. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a bit. Hmm. Um, so go back to the opening um, with those Klingon ships, and that's another kind of indication that this is something much more bigger than the original series. And you look at those Klingon ships in the beginning. Not only were there more than one, um, but also the detail. Well, no, no, it was all... It's the same ship show <laughs> yeah. with three different parts. It's, but yeah. um, but the, the, the detail on that ship... Is brilliant. Is incredible. Yeah, I, I, I did, I did notice they'd look, um, a very, they look kind of slightly more... Not quite the Klingons we get later on in the film series. It looks like... It reminded me... I thought of Reeves and Mortimer when I watched this. Because <laughs> when, when, when they used to do the heart-to-heart thing... And they had to have Max from Heart to Heart, which will go right over the head of quite a few people listening. He just glued, like, biscuits to his face <laughs> to look like him. And it actually just looks like they've stuck Cornish pasties on their head. 
I think they look like they've got cocktail-sized Cornish pasties on their head because you've just got you've just got that sort of crimped bit down the it's middle like and nothing or something. else. There's no ridges, and their hair is is slightly different than we get later as well. It's more tufty. And I did not recognise that as Mark Lillard. I know it no. is, but I did not recognise no. it. No, he's under a mound of makeup. So. But we have started that process of reinventing the Klingons. Obviously, it gets refined as we as we go it's through. It's Worf. Yeah, and even through the time as Worf, because Worf in the first series doesn't look like Worf in the last series. No, he changes as well, makeup, doesn't he? His makeup just gets refined over time. Gets a bit better. Yeah. Is it? I don't know what the uh, what the relationship here is between the Klingons and the Federation, because um, you see the, the the Klingons later on talking to the uh, Epsilon Nine base after they get attacked. Um, but in the original script, there was a scene where they had the Enterprise did have some trouble with some Klingons, and actually there was a, the original script called for a source of separation sequence. Which um, obviously didn't happen until the next generation with the uh, the Enterprise D. But you go from here, and then you go from, and then you look at um, the Wrath of Khan with the Kobayashi Maru, and then the search for Spock, and suddenly the Klingons are uh, enemies again. So I'm not sure exactly what happened. Yeah, I think it. I I, I do wonder if it's just a showing off the new crafts. Well, yeah. Also, the Klingons have always been seen as quite a tough adversary for us, if you like, and of course they're just they're just taken out of existence with no trouble at all. Yeah. So, so, so whilst in in reality, reality, wrong word to choose, really. <laughs> but whilst whilst if this were real, there's no reason their ship should be any hardier than like a Federation one. There's something no. about three Klingon battle cruisers just being taken out of existence that's that easily. Exactly. Yeah. Again, it's a state. We've also got when you, when you do see Epsilon Nine, one of the guys there was the guy cast as a zombie, yeah. the Vulcan that was going to be in the series. Oh, interesting. So the the one that we see in a while that doesn't last very long is is not the one that would have been in yeah. the show by name or actor. Fun fact. Mm. That's fun. Not as fun. Not as fun as the fun we're going to have later with the facts. <laughs> I've had a sneak peek there. So much fun. <laughs> That's fun, folks. Yeah, so, I mean, this is again going back to how Star Trek was before this, and uh, the kind of time between the original series ending and when this came along. Um, just yeah, just looking at this film, and like you said, I mean, I don't know how long it is before the Enterprise leaves—half an hour, maybe—where they're kind of getting everyone together. Um, and <clears throat> yeah, because I I did a lot of research beforehand about when the uh, original Enterprise was launched and how long it has been since the five year mission. And like you said, yeah, it's been about two and a half years. Yeah. Um, since so so when the five and most year of that time it's been sat in space, not being refitted completely. <clears throat> well, that's it. So it came home. It started getting refitted. Captain got. Kirk promoted to a desk job. Spock went off to Vulcan to purge all his emotions, and Doctor McCoy went off to retire to, to, somewhere to, to a, a swingers, to a swingers party in Ditch. Yeah, <laughs> with that with that medallion. Oh, no. He was he became medallion man, didn't he? From from Saturday Night Fever or something. I just I laughed out loud at that scene. I'm sorry, but I did. Rock, rocking his long hair and being like. <laughs> yeah, late, he loves to join the disco fever. Turns into Don Knotts. 
<laughs> it does a little bit. At this point, he's he's been at a swingers party. <laughs> yes, he, he 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 you know gave up being a doctor for a life of fun. Damn it, Jim, I'm a swinger, not. A... <laughs> but, but but instantly he has a shave though. So I'm back in the inspires. Might as well shave. Who can blame him, really? <laughs> here's, here's a thought, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what exactly did McCoy do in this film? Because, because like, you know, like, Shatner makes a big point saying, like, McCoy, I need you! And it's like, oh, okay, I need you and, then, now. and then what's he do? Because uh, 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 it, it suddenly occurred to me where, like, at the end, they all talk, they're all, like, kind of got together and they're like talking about how like the the, the yeah, they that's a new life form it's like <laughs> well I've, I've i've never delivered a new life form before and you so still like, haven't? <laughs> it's like really? well, i did not i didn't i didn't realize you actually did anything McCoy. <laughs> no there's, there's a scene right. where like chekhov gets his hand burned or something doesn't he and it's and it's um it's chapel he does everything well, well the like, thing is 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 that again this this is something that the the Wrath Khan gets a lot of credit for, but this film kind of tried to do. But it did it in a very 70s approach, which I kind of prefer, um, which is make, bringing the, the three back together, Spock, yeah. Kirk, McCoy. McCoy is there throughout the film as an advisor, as Kirk's conscience, because of how Kirk is. Like you said, Kirk is a dick. Kirk's agenda <laughs> on this... But he has he, the devil he, and angel on each shoulder, doesn't he? So Yeah, but he doesn't have the angel because Spock has no. got, got his own... Agenda. Yeah. So, there's, yeah. So there's is, a lot of really. times where where McCoy will like this one point where he says, "Jim, you're pushing it," and and he says, "You use this to get back your command," yeah. and kind of all the way through the film, and Ian even calls out Spock as well. McCoy calls out Spock and says, "How do we know about him? How do right, we know about any got of the us?" Right to say it though, Charlie, as well, because. Oh yeah! In a minute, we're going to get to a scene where Scotty more or less says the same thing to him, yeah. but he says it a bit jokier because he kind of yeah. knows his place. In fact, the one thing that doesn't ring true in that that, that thing is he's like touches Kirk on the arm, and it's yeah. like, no, you're be- actually being over familiar for who you are. Don't forget, on a ship, the Doctor has the right um, take command from the captain. There are obviously caveats around that, so but there are circumstances where the the Doctor can say, no, you're not keeping command. Yeah, so I, th- I think, again, because of the nature of how this film is versus maybe what people wanted it to be, which is the old Star Trek as it is, which we see in The Wrath of Khan, ostensibly, that is the old Star Trek crew as they were. But this is all about putting that old Star Trek crew back together and getting over any of the issues they may have had previously, as in Spock and what has been going on with him and him, again, f- probably uh, certainly not developed enough in the film as well as it sh- should be but kind of the fighting over which is something that's been an integral part of his character fighting between Vulcan and humanity whereas in the Wrath of Khan they're all back together they're all very happy everyone's yeah, the, kind of, the, the jolly crew as they were here and again this, this film has a very kind of 70s feel there's some a lot of films in the 70s were so much kind of based on character conflict and um, there was a very kind of downbeat feel to so many of them. Um, and it seems realistic that kind of these people that are kind of coming back, that are kind of, again, Kirk, Captain Kirk's gone to this desk job and it's not him. And it's something that, that Spock says in, in the next one. He says, commanding a starship is your first best destiny. And it's true. Waste of material. Exactly. And, um, and that's something that, that Kirk certainly realises. And as... 
as people say, he uses this um, this crisis to get. It's another thing that makes this film look like almost left out of continuity because we move on twelve years next time. Kirk's in a similar position next time, and also we've got the added element of a meditation on age and usefulness next time that we we don't really have this time. But we cut to San Francisco next, which is obviously Starfleet Command. And we see him meeting up with a Vulcan, who's mm. going to be his new science officer. And he's basically heading off back to the Enterprise and tells him to meet him there an hour later. And to cut a long story short, he transfers up to the sort of station, meets Scotty, and Scotty flies him over by shuttlecraft. And we get told during that that he's taking command back because he said... Scotty's worried that they've got to launch because they're the, the closest ship and everything else. They've got to launch, and yet they've only just had a refit. None of the systems are tried, and neither is the captain, meaning Decker. But obviously Kirk replies with, well, I wouldn't call myself untried, reveals he's taken the ship back. And then we get a sequence from shuttle bay to shuttle bay, i.e. when it unlatches to when it relatches, is nearly six minutes. <laughs> It's a long, long sequence, but I think it's fantastic. I love it. It 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 seems so. It doesn't actually feel that long. It oh, it feels kind of very natural and organic when you watch it until it actually abruptly ends and you feel like, fucking oh, hell, yeah. Okay, <laughs> I, <was> like, <laughs> I think what makes it kind of mesmerising is the, the use of the music and you get that longingly stare at the Enterprise. You kind of with Kirk thinking. Oh wow, look at the ship. He doesn't guess... overact it. I mean, I've joked about it at times. He isn't jizzing himself. He isn't looking at it with incredible wonder. He's just appreciating it. You know, he's missed this ship. And he's us as well, because if you're a Star Trek fan, you've never seen the Enterprise in that detail. I mean, it's a completely new model as it goes, which they just sell as a refit. It's all been kitted out inside. It looks new, very shiny. But obviously at this stage, he's only seeing the outside. We're seeing the Enterprise in more detail than we've ever been able to see it before. And that's and it's yeah it's, it's beautiful the way they build it up and and with the music as well I it's mean this gorgeous. it's it's Kirk's one true love and it treats it like a love scene almost and the music as well the the way it's so romantic and just just the way it's structured and, and the way of course Kirk farts and falls asleep right afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> He, he, he does walk on a bridge with a bit awkward little walk. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I love this though. The music's lovely. Isn't just, it, just, just coming on the bridge. I mean, um... and and the, the way the way it's kind of structured, the way that I mean that that space dock is kind of a bit of design genius because of the way you see the, the you see it coming across, and um, you could, you only see bits of the ship through the kind of slats. And the music's kind of very romantic, but as soon as you see even a tiny bit of the Enterprise, which you can, you have this this uh, kind of copper space dock, and then behind it is this gleaming white spaceship, and it's kind of the the music kind of goes to these really high strings, almost kind of angelic like. It feels like it sounds like it's almost kind of mimicking a choir, and then it kind of slowly moves round and round, and you see more and more of the ship. And then it turns forward, and it's really the, the anticipation is really there. And then you see it face forward without any obstruction, and the music just goes wild and just goes massive. And um, and it's just such a beautifully realised moment. And it is it is a love letter, not just between Captain Kirk and the ship, um, but also 
yeah, the fans and this ship, because it's not like Star Wars or whatever, where you have a dozen different X-Wings and Millennium Falcon and Y-Wings and A-Wings and all that kind of thing. There are all sorts of different spaceships in Star Trek, but the centre of it is always the Enterprise. So, and, and this is kind of like a celebration of that. And that, that's how it feels to me that it's, okay, on the one level, it's Captain Kirk coming back to the Enterprise. And on the other level, this is the Enterprise. This is the ship that you fell in love with previously. Like you said, this is it now with much more detail, a new kind of design for the uh, for the cinema. And uh, yeah, this, this is your Star Trek. This is your moment. We, we get onto the ship next. And um, to cut a long story short, he has to basically tell Decker he's nicked his job. Uh, but Decker's, Decker's happy to see him, though, because he feels honoured that an admiral's come to visit. Yeah, getting the royal send-off. What, what I love about it, as soon as he walks on a bridge, it's like everything just seems like a complete mess, and everyone just stops and like, oh, thank God you're here, Kirk. Oh, my God. It's like everyone's just so pleased to see him, and then all, and all of a sudden everything just starts, like, getting to function, and he goes to see Decker in the engineer room, and it tells him, like... The ship isn't ready. We see that again in Star Trek V. We see it again a bit in Generations. There's a little bit, which I'm not sure is in this version, where... Because there, there's been a fair few versions of it, and there was a kind of an extended version of the film that was released on VHS way before they did the re cut all version. of the Joker's scenes out of this um, <laughs> Yeah, Joe Lennon wasn't happy with that, yeah. <laughs> When when Kirk leaves, they stay on the bridge for a second, and there's an alien guy um, who who just talks about Decker and how he's been with the refitting the ship since since it began. And then, this cup. Uh, yeah, and then Uhura says our chances of coming back may have just tripled, or coming back in one piece may have just tripled. Yeah, I think that that is slightly redundant. I mean, we know why Kirk is there. And yeah. not only that, what what you've got there is effectively, comparatively, an old timer. I mean, Michelle Nichols isn't that old at oh, this yeah. point, but she's that previous generation of of officer, and she's like, ah, oh, the real captain's back. And and actually, in reality, that's not proven at the outset to be true. If Decker had not been on this ship, they could have all been killed fairly quickly. But um, in line with the film itself, we're taking an awful long time to get out of space dock. Uh, <laughs> so they set off uh, 50, 35 minutes into the film they start leaving uh, Space mm. Dock and they, they take quite a languid time over it takes about 3 minutes for them to get out properly. Is that before they yeah. they um, did have that lot of uh, malfunction with the um, teleporter? Yeah, I was just, yeah. Oh, the, sorry, yes, I've skipped yeah, that, sorry. Yeah, so th- I mean, I again, I really like that because that's a really nasty moment and it's kind of, it's not, again, it's not something you'd really expect from a Star Trek film and certainly, kind of going on, people always kind of call out the uh, the, the ear slugs, um, yes. particularly from Wrath of Khan, yeah. as being kind of like horrific kind of moments. But so that that was seeing all these people kind of malformed, and that and then that line says, <laughs> "What's left of them?" Yeah, what's left from what, what came live back long. didn't live long. Yeah. I don't, it, I don't, what, what I really like about it is that it, it, it you're right, it is kind of like nasty, but it's not graphic. You know, oh no, it, no, no! It, it, it works. It, it gives you enough. It, it tells you like you know you can just be told something and it's just effective enough. And you say that like something just like a teleport just working here, the screams and it's again it's working with idea because I think you know I mean you, correct me if I'm wrong, Charlie, but uh, I assume that 
the teleport always works without fail in the series. Uh, so something like that. Uh, I don't think... Well, it was kind of a device. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, I mean, either it works or it doesn't. It means like... It was, actually, yeah. it was actually cost to start with because you, you can't... The cost of seeing a ship land and all yeah, the rest exactly. of it. Yeah. But, I mean, there are malfunctions. I mean, you've got... Um, you know, where Kirk gets split into like an evil and a good half, and all the rest of it. What there hasn't been much of is fatal, mm. yeah, issues with it. Yeah, it's, it's quite shocking, it's, isn't it? You it's, think, it's, oh god, it's a re- yes, yeah, it's, it's really well done. The it's way by transporter. they use the transporter effect as kind of like an opaque kind of field. This is, transfer, this is my favourite yeah. This is my favourite transporter effect. So you can see those what's happening behind, but you can't really see it in any kind of detail, which has a really kind of re- makes you think that something really, really horrific is happening, but you don't really see it. And like the yeah, the screams as well. Yeah, it's just terrifying. I was quite surprised. I was because I didn't expect it. So I just kind of thought, oh, you know, something is, is always going to work, and it adds an extra layer of peril. So the ship's not ready, and you think. Oh god! You know what happens if somebody dies halfway through? And you think, oh. Well, again, it, it, it just adds like, some, it adds something like something a more realistic thing to something you never thought about before. Yeah, that's, exactly. that, that, that's what I really liked about it, and the the the, the gruesome. It's also it. reminding you this ship is not ready. Yeah, mm. but it's also a device that it leaves it leaves a space for Spark, and I mean, there, there's other narrative reasons that they will have changed it to that. What really sells it to me, Shatner. I mean, he's got his hammy points even in this film, and he's got his certainly as we go forward. But he has matured as an actor. He he does sell this to me. This yeah. really unsettles Kirk. It's it, it's the after effect. And it's it, again. It's like how he's even calling. He, he sort of rest assures the um, one the engineers officers like there's nothing you could have done. Yeah, he tells it. That's actually um, Janice. Like, Rand. Yeah, it's not your fault. Yeah. that's Janice Rand. You see her in about the first nine episodes of the original series as a yeoman who was basically Kirk's secretary. Is right. the best way to put it. And she left for various reasons. She only died a year or two ago, the actress Grace Lee Whitney. But yeah, she's 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 she is a callback to the original series. That's that's Rand. He calls her Rand as well. Again, that's a bit of a it's a really kind of cold moment. He just says, "It's a it's alright, Rand. It wasn't your fault." And then leaves, and she kind of looks at him as if it's, as it's kind of like throwing throwing that in her face. But it's, it's also you could of, think about it in in any amount of depth you want because thinking about it now. He hasn't been at the sharp end for a while. Exactly, yeah. He doesn't actually know what to do. He hasn't had to deal with death. Whereas, like, plenty of people died in the five-year mission, but now it's like, oh, oh God. You know, yeah, Decker says to him, you you haven't logged the star hours. He couldn't even think, like, right, well, I'm I'm in command. There's stuff to get in on with. Let's not, you know, let's let's just wallow on something. Let's just... He just doesn't know what to do about it other than he's got to let the families know. So he passes on his condolences literally about two seconds after it happens and then gets himself out of there as soon as possible. But they leave Space Dock and there's we've had, the, we've had those malfunction. We've got Scotty saying that they haven't been tested at warp yet. He told him that on the shuttle. So they go to warp. It creates a wormhole. This is, this is my least favourite bit of the whole film. The... Uh... I say the traditional Star Trek acting yeah. of the picking uh, about on the uh, on on the bridge. It's funny when it's all, all finishes because Persis Cambata is still shaking and no one else is. They all yeah, stop. I noticed that she's still quite, quite vigorously yeah, moving yeah, they're, around. They're and the other ones are still like, well mm-hmm. choreographed in how much each of them is shaking. Yeah, no. um, let's the right, let's the left. What it's there to tell us is two things really. Um, although we only find out the first one in retrospect later, which is how much they need Spock, because you've got um, 
uh, Decker doubling up a science officer. He's been reduced in grade and forced to do two jobs. <laughs> He's executive officer, which is first officer, as we two jobs for less pay. Generation. There isn't well, there probably isn't pay. We don't. The, the, the economics of the future are somewhat different, uh, <laughs> as as gets covered and then contradicted all over the show. Sure. But, yes. But you've got. Um, but it tells them how much they need Scott a Spock. But it also tells you Kirk is not up to speed with how this ship works now. Because if they basically have Decker leap out of his chair when uh, Kirk says to ready phasers, because phasers are cha- channeling from the engines, which are already malfunctioning anyway, and it would have it would have ended up killing them. That's that's the thing. And then and then again, you see Kirk take Decker and McCoy into his wherever we're ready room or whatever he's in that's his quarters for, uh, which is odd it's the weirdest looking quarters in the world looks it looks really like, comfortable it looks right? it looks like a comfortable sort of it's like an airport lounge bar yeah that's what and i you, thought uh, and with the big windows from behind the ship as well it's quite a nice, nice design i mean it's a little yeah. dated now but it, it's quite nice those, During... those chairs look so comfortable yeah they do yeah it's, it's like can I have a word with it's like if if yeah, you're in the you're in your job. Can I have a word with you, please, Mr. Decker? <laughs> and then calls him into his office and uh and then you and then he's wrong. And Bones goes with him. And again, I don't think that's just to cram DeForest Kelly into another scene. No. I think it's no. DeForest Kelly realizing Kirk might even be a little bit out of his depth. Yeah. Because DeForest Kelly is. He, he you know, Bones, they got out of this wormhole and he says, I you know, I've lost my wits. This is that was terrifying. So if I'm scared, presumably Kirk must be. Yeah. We do need Decker, although after that, I mean, certainly once Spock comes aboard, he doesn't even have a seat. It's, it's a bit, they haven't thought that through too well. I don't know if this is a good point to mention about the music. The music as it was, um, they originally recorded about 20 minutes of it. And then Robert Wise, again, called Joe Goldsmith into his office and said he didn't like it. And uh, they said that the original music, which they kind of, they recorded music for the, uh, the the Spock arrival scene and then for when the Enterprise he, Kirk sees the Enterprise for the first time and then when the Enterprise leaves the uh, the, the space dock and um, what they said was they said it sounded a lot like sailing ships and what happened was he hadn't really written a theme for it so um, they had to go back and rewrite the cues they had done so far um, and what he did then is he wrote the actual Star Trek theme and then uh, put it back in, re-recorded it all, and uh, and suddenly it was all working amazingly well. Um, so, And it's kind of only in kind of recent years has it really been released, that music, um, to be able to listen to and all the kind of different alternate cues and things like that on uh, the soundtrack album. And it's really kind of a really interesting contrast. So where do we go from there? Spock joining basically i think yeah so we we had the early shot the early scene of spock where um he is on vulcan and uh he is about to graduate from colonial university if you've just posed your emotions you don't want to be seen celebrating too hard <laughs> no, it's like, oh, i'm really happy oh shit and the most lo- and he's part human so you know the most logical necklace in the world which obviously came from vulcan etsy um, looking at it's, it, yeah, it looks very nice. <laughs> yeah. um, the commentary that actually on Vulcan, a lot of the designs are hexagonal, and so is Vija. Yeah, uh, exactly. But uh, 
And he comes aboard and he's clearly distracted. And, and this film gets knocked a lot for not having the sort of humour and interplay you got in the series. Well, we've just seen an example in Kirk's quarters. We'll see another one with the three of them in a little while. And there is actually humour because they go to the bridge and he's there looking incredibly distracted and not yeah. happy with it. And they say, oh, I'm really happy to see you. And even both <laughs> is really happy to see him. And the camera reverses from him looking quizzical. And they're all like, they've all got these smiles frozen on their faces, particularly to Bob's <laughs> And he's getting nothing back. And it's like, all right, then. <laughs> I think that was really good. But then I think we go straight back to, do we go straight back to Kirk's quarters with the three of them? Is that right after that? Yeah, because uh, yeah, because he tells him of uh, what what had happened and how what he thought about the probe, and then says, "I can solve your warp drive problems." Yeah, which he does within three hours. Yeah, but when they talk about it, they, 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 I mean, first he's trying to get Spock to sit down, and I think yeah, he's uncomfortable by how distant Spock is, and his wig sort of moves a bit funnily when he says that as well. But uh, can't get over the sideburns. You've, you've got like bones making fun of them as well kind of and it's, it's actually it's the thing this film gets doesn't get credited with having yeah you no know, it's not really like the series because the byplay's not there yes it is that's that could easily have been a scene from the series yeah but yeah he fixes the he fixes the warp drive within three hours i think the narration because we get a captain's log then and yeah. we get sting of the original music the theme tune from the the tv but, show for the but, a really kind of, but a really kind of downbeat version. But a really downbeat version. And then we he yeah. gets it and we go to warp again. And at this point, I don't know, we're, we're, we're quite deep into the film. And finally, they're, they're on their way to, to the, yeah. this cloud. And the, uh, the, the slit scan. Um, warp the bit effect. we've missed, actually, um, is when Kurt takes command, he meets everybody in the recreation room. Yeah, excuses me, because the rec room in the animated series, I forgot to say that last week, Chris, you asked about the um, holodeck, mm. and I said, oh, it, it does have its in the original series. Not the original series, I meant the original crew. It's in the animated series. They had a room called the rec room, and that was like a precursor of the hologram. But the recreation room here is where Kirk addresses them all and what's going to happen. They get a call from Epsilon 9 through, which Kirk gets patched straight through, and I think, well, that's his first tactical mistake, because <laughs> the captain now cannot control the narrative. Mm. He can, t- really, he should have. If that was the next gen era, Picard would have taken that in his ready room. Yeah, and then he would have like told his senior crew most of the story, and that would have been cascaded out across the ship, a bit more muted. But of course, they all stood there, and they basically. <laughs> Yeah, they basically watch Epsilon 9 being, like, erased from existence. That, right that, poor, that poor lone astronaut that's, that's out there doing work on the space station. Yeah. But again, I like that it shows a bit of emotion from Kirk, because when it all happens, he goes, you're off. And yeah, then everyone's kind of, Yeah, you're off. off. You're off. Yeah. Because everyone's kind of frozen in fear. I've of seen course, this. he wouldn't have expected that, but it's just another sign he's a bit rusty. You know, it isn't just... He, he hasn't suddenly lost his judgment. And uh, and as we get later into the film, he displays that judgment again. But yeah. at this point, he hasn't had to make these calls for a while. 
And you know when people. It's, it's a bit of an odd call to make because I don't think anyone's ever dealt with like a, a mysterious cloud on its way to Earth, destroying everything in its path. Or, you know. No, but you've got a call, an urgent call coming in from Epsilon Nine, which is near where all this stuff happened with the Klingons. You've got your entire crew stood there. Mm. You might think you want to vet that message first, mm. but it's yeah. it, the thing is he's had three years sat behind a desk where every message he would take wouldn't have that overlay of peril. Yeah. He's used to just answering the quote-unquote the phone to whoever it was, and now all of a sudden he's back at the sharp end, and it's like, oh, shit, stuff like that can happen. Yeah. And then you have a bit of exposition about Decker and Ilea. I don't... uh, This film struggles every time it tries to deal with this pair. It's quite good when he first comes aboard to see Decker's nose put out a joint. Yeah, and all the rest of it, and for him still to prove that he has a use, but that use once Kirk knows that there are people on the ship who've been involved in the refit, Spock's back, and it all becomes redundant apart from later on. Basically, I don't really like the Decaralia stuff at all. How do you feel? um, A a bit random, I think. It's just distracting. I find it distracting. I don't think they their relationship really gets time to blossom because before anything. But you get like a bit of dialogue that the fact that they've had a past, and then the plot moves on, and then she gets abducted, and then and then all that stuff kind of happens. It's kind of pre that really. It's like when she has that kind of robotic copy. Yeah, it's very un- underdeveloped. So it's you don't have the emotional punch, so to speak, to to, to make. To, I mean, it's the only thing that gives him relevance in the film, really, because every, and it catches every... them out at the end. Because at the end, sorry to skip forward, but when he goes to sort of join with this and he's like, as much as you wanted the Enterprise, I want this. Mm. We don't really know why. We don't know what it is. But we know that isn't Ilea. So it's a bit confusing, to be honest with you. And it's not. Stakes aren't very high. But it it does have Ilea's consciousness inside it. It does, to be fair. There there could be a sense that he wants to join Ilea wherever she's gone as well. I mean, mean, it's not really explained, like, is she just destroyed or. At very least, yeah, but at very least, Chris, it could have been done a bit better. Yeah. I think that's all. Could have been a bit clearer. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Is there a line where she says it's been replaced or something like that with the carbon unit has been replaced or something like that yeah, that that, that, yeah. Carbon, that unit's no longer functioning yeah yeah i mean i mean yeah that, that's the thing i mean i like i mean i like the idea of it and i like i think it, the way it plays out better as, as it goes on it gets better and it is kind of it works for me from at the end but yeah it's very underdeveloped and he's very bland as well and yeah it's all kind of very much kind of um, yeah, these all these tiny little interjecting scenes um, that don't really kind of conjure up. I mean, yeah, you get the, the bare bones of it, and while she's got her oath of celibacy and bare bones, he, what he, an image! Yeah, <laughs> and he left her. Uh, he he left her planet and didn't say goodbye. But there obviously, there's obviously the uh, the subtext there is that they're still very much in love. That would have been developed later in the series, though, wouldn't it? That exactly, would have been, exactly. Yeah. There would have been a conversation yeah. at whatever, you know, that ship's version of 10 forward, assuming they had something like that, and they yeah. would have sat and talked it out, probably. Mm. You know, but don't again, you realise, well, you, I didn't know you still had those feelings, and you would have had those sorts of conversations. Yeah. The, the film from now on, it doesn't lose me, and it stuck. I, I stuck with it a lot better this time because obviously they get to this cloud, 
the visuals are really great, and the um, the music goes full on Bernard Herrmann's Vertigo. Mm. Yeah, the the music is is gorgeous. I mean, so you, you get the first point where they encounter Vija, and they're sending out the same probes we saw earlier, but Spock is able to counteract that by transmitting his uh, sign of, of friendship. And then uh, that's where they're kind of, that's why I like it because, <clears throat> again, that's kind of, I guess, could be counted as action because there's danger. And we've already seen what they did to the Klingon ships initially and Epsilon 9. But then from that, it's kind of, okay, the danger stopped. Now there's the, the time when we can do some actual exploring. Yeah, it doesn't actually sell us uh, what... I, it plays with the idea that Spock may not be entirely loyal to the crew. Yeah, which because he's got <clears> some <throat> conscious, some feeling of consciousness from this ship. Um, he, when he says transmit now to him, uh, Spock's very slow to do so. Uh, don't didn't really sell us that, but we get this very very long visual. One of the things that's changed between the two versions of the film is the David Gautreau character, but the guy who would have been in the series on Epsilon Five. He's Epsilon 9, sorry. He said that um, they measured it at 82 AU or something mm. like that. Do you remember that line, guys? Did you count them saying something about the size of it? Yeah. Well, I looked up what AU meant. Well, in fact, it's in the 50-year mission book. And it's basically, I think it's a bit more complicated than this, but it's the distance between us and the sun. Mm-hmm. So it's 93 million miles. So 82 times that. And that's wow. been corrected in the director's cut to 2 AU. So oh. this cloud across, this, this, this construction, is twice the distance of us from the sun. Bloody hell. That's fucking... That's vast. <laughs> so, yeah. but, but, but I'm wondering, like, what, what's happened to all the other planets it's, it's going across? Is it just not like... Is it just at, at the right time where, it's, where it doesn't kind of... We that. don't know. I mean, don't forget that the Klingons, I suppose it's another reason you would choose the Klingons, because their first form of defence would be attack. Mm. Now, Kirk, at this point, shows his, he's, he's hired for his experience, and we've seen him early in the film not be up to date with the craft. But at this point, Decker wants to, to do all these things, and, and Kirk's saying, no, we're not going to put shields up, we're not going to probe yeah. them. They will see that as a form of attack. And they just sit there until Spock seems to have a psychic link to them, is saying, why have we not, why have we not responded? That is the sort of thing I would have expected more in to be written into the idea character for reasons we'll get to in Becca's fun facts later. Mm. But she's she's got he's got like a psychic link with it. And basically what we later find out to be Vija is just confused. It's like, well, we're talking to you and you're not responding. Yeah. I guess from in in terms of where it had been before, um its its mission is Earth. It's going towards Earth because it wants to find, as we found out, its creator. So it didn't necessarily go to need to kind of go past any, around any of those planets, I suppose, in any kind of significant way in terms of... Yeah, it, it does, it does like betray that. its roots of us being TV a little bit in that we are told not shown in a lot of cases because yeah. there's a bit of dialogue that, uh, uh, that basically um, he mind mails with its Spock in a sequence I used to hate but quite like now, where he sort of does a bit of a spacewalk to it. Mm. And he basically finds out that this, he sees it's a machine planet, which he assumed was its home. But we later find out that 
it's an Earth probe that went through a wormhole to a deep part of the galaxy. Um, basically, with th- this machine got it, got it as uh, going out there for knowledge because it was a probe, and then returning back to where it came from to disseminate that knowledge, as we would do with any probe or send back the information. Um, and it's it's interpreted it completely literally. And it's it's basically tried to learn everything it can and then go back to Earth to um, to hand it back. Now, there was a rumor. There was a rumor. There was a theory back along. That this was some kind of precursor to the Borg. Yeah, because when they were when Ilea comes back as because the, they probe the ship and Ilea gets basically disintegrated or certainly assimilated, you would say, as per yeah. the Borg. And she comes back and says, you will all be. She doesn't use the word assimilated, but that's basically what she's saying. Mm. And of course, Enterprise has fucking ruined that for us by having the Borg in an earlier episode and all that shit. So what was a nice little theory that I didn't believe, but thought was like a nice little what if has been completely undermined. But I do love the look of this. I really do love the look of of this whole thing is just to get to like a, a tiny little probe. They can walk around it like like it's the inside of the TARDIS or something with a little console. That's all it really is. Mm. But again, it's, it's, it's something we don't really see in Star Trek anymore, and that's exploring. The, the whole seeking out new life and new civilizations. This is all of that in one film with this journey they go on. And it's, it's something that's... That, doesn't necessarily seem to again again not in any kind of anything close to this form and also one, one of the things i love about these these sequences <clears throat> i mean they're kind of the music is it kind of goes from the bombast and romance that you see you hear previously and goes into something that's much more kind of mysterious and almost ambient and it's a, just as a side note it's, it's very interesting that two films that jerry goldsmith scored in the same year were this and alien yeah yeah, and there are certain kind of certain feelings and certain sounds that are certainly the, the two share in terms of kind of what they evoke. And say, well, really it actually, kind of like purpose, the score perhaps? goes kind of romantic without going sappy because we get a lot yeah. of Arlea's theme again, yeah. which is which is relevant because it's all about her and Decker from then on. But it's in um, different keys. It's just really nice. And this also one thing as well, which which to be fair to Abrams, he man he did in his film but which was never really done as much as it was in here was a sense of scale i mean i think yes. one thing you do see it with if you think about the reboot where the kelvin is up against the narada at the start of the film yeah and then and you see the, the sheer scale of difference in size yeah and, and at the, the end yeah, as well with the enterprise yeah um, but, um we do get it in this they use a little tiny two inch model or something at one point yeah and it's just, but it doesn't, it looks great. Exactly. But it's just this tiny speck traveling through. And even and then, they're underselling it because, again, they are traveling not that quickly through something that is actually from us to the sun twice. Yeah, which is just crazy. Mm. And But, I mean, even when you see them, I mean, because the model, the actual, uh, the model for the film, um, the Enterprise was uh gigantic it was basically 12 feet um i I know that they would they had a five foot one for the tv show and they had to sort of 
shit can it because it wasn't enough detail and it wasn't quite the fine same design anyway. But yeah. they, they did use it as the destroyed Enterprise in three. Eight, eight feet long. Eight feet. Yeah, that's still so, bigger. That's still bigger than like the next generation one and stuff exactly. like that. Exactly. Yeah. So, so again, because the level of detail, but also with something like that, whereas where it's a physical object, just again, you get a sense of scale to it. Yeah. Um, and where the where the model kind of you don't have to worry about again. This is I don't want to go into a big kind of models versus CGI thing, but in terms of things like this, um, there's a lot of things that you don't have to fake. Because you have a real thing there, you have a real physical object, and uh, and it's here really. It's... Bit, I would go as far as to say I don't think the Enterprise has, has often been lit as well as in this film. No, no. Um, again, the, the system they come up with with self lighting the ship, yeah. which is again made a very big part when they start up the ship and when they leave. All the which, lights coming on, yeah. All the lights come on, yeah. Which is a great moment, and again reused in the in the next film. They draw straws to change the bulbs. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I thought. Hmm. Um, and then yeah, but and then just going through these huge, huge areas and seeing all these strange, strange things, and it's just kind of mesmerising, really. And you you think looking at all these things and looking at it how nineteen seventy nine to 2016 and just looking how it still holds up going through that sequence going through the, the whole Vija ship and uh and it's just it's but, e- but even the even crazy. the even the bits i mean the, the first time i noticed how crisp this film is now it's been restored and everything else but wasn't actually those scenes it was in kirk's quarters where i looked at it and went actually the next few don't look this good and I think it is because it's 70 millimeter. Yeah. The, the, the detail is there to be drawn out. Um, whereas, they you know, really on Blu-ray, it does look quite good though. Most of the scenes, I, I was quite impressed with how they turned out on, on the Blu-ray. I was. Yeah. I mean, given you've watched the theatrical cut, we've all watched the theatrical cut here, sure. you know, and I wouldn't recommend that you have to go and watch the other one. It's not different enough. No. But, uh, yeah, I must have, I've but at not the seen, same time, the obviously they went to update some stuff. You've watched it as released in '79, and it, okay. is it Star Wars good in effects? No, but it's really nice. Mm. And the Vija stuff actually looks great. I'm it's not incredible. sure I buy that it wouldn't know its own name, but all right. <laughs> I must say, there's there's a lot of um, obviously this this film is quite philosophical, um, and I think it, as I say, it wants to be 2001 in lots of different respects. Um, there's a lot of a sense of wonder and sense of like just amazement at the enormity of being in this film. I think there's, there's a lot of time spent and on pushing the species on. That yes. that is very a too much a two thousand yeah, one theme. Birth yeah, and e- death evolution. And yeah. yeah, evolution. That's it, definitely. Um, and we do see the birth of a new species, not the birth of a new species, but the joining of two species. Two species, yeah. One of which is sort of almost. I suppose also you got, you got the theme of like te- of, uh, technology um, coming back to like. To, to bite you really essentially you know that you start something you, you create something and it comes and it comes back as a, a as a, as a even more powerful than you even expect it to be you know but also i mean we've talked about this during during the intro episode last week the what we might perceive as hostile in this universe isn't we talked about it when we talked about devil in the dark 
Yeah. You know, that w- this is not a hostile being in any way, shape or form. It needs to be understood. Yeah. We, we repeat, we get to it in a bit more of a throwaway fashion when we get to Star Trek four, that the whole plot of that film is, is, is kicked into motion by the need to communicate effectively. Mm. Mm. And it's, it's all about perspective. And, and I'm really pleased they didn't finish on a load of action. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I think it could have been tightened. I do think this is a this oh, is a yeah. ninety minute film that they wouldn't want to release at ninety minutes anyway because it would lose its grandeur and self importance. Yeah, I think this film needs to have a certain. It, length they could to at it. least shave ten minutes of it, just in the terms of I think in terms of like the the some of the sequences they just take a little bit too long. Once they enter the cloud, that's taking forever. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I get it what they're doing. It's, quite a long time. It, it's like. It, it's just like wallowing. It tells you the size because of how long it's taking. Though. Yeah, I, I get and, it. And it's just wallowing in, in the epicness of it. It's like you're getting lost. It's almost like you're just getting lost in the moment, which I get. I can, it's, well, it's probably the, the main reason why I, I kind of got with it. I was like, yeah, okay, let's, let's just like and appreciate the spectacle. Time. You know, let's get just let's just all get caught up and just like take a moment. You know, let's appreciate some some scenery and just go, all right, yeah. yeah. But bear um, in mind, we've taken 38 minutes to properly exit. Um, space dock yeah. properly and then from a, for about the last 40 minutes of the film we're, we're covering what you could cover in a third of the time I'm not saying you should but I can see why people might think oh, I, this is a bit pompous I did, I did think this should be 2 hours rather than 2 hours 12 you know what I mean it's, it, 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 I think it's like okay it doesn't need to be over I don't think that would reduce I don't think that would lose you too much doing that no it just just no. tying up just a little, you know, just just to make it, yeah. you know, fly a bit longer, you know, because it's already. Kind of, you, haven't, you haven't got much. And again, it, on it, it anyway, when they go back to the craft after this, because obviously Ilea and Decker or Ilea, the Ilea bot, and um, Ilea probe. And again, it's a bit bored like because it's almost like a single consciousness. They're talking through Ilea. Yeah, it, it, it's a single consciousness, and they join, and I quite like that effect, as dated as it is, where they join. Um, and then they're back on the ship, and again, it's a bit like the end of an episode. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you've just lost one member of your crew to death. You've just had a new member of your crew die in a hideous accident. <laughs> you know? Um, and you're flying off like, good good job, team. But there was also that, that thing that the, um, they were sort of like, oh, they've um, lost like casualties was like Alia and Decker. And then they were like, actually, no. Consider them lost. Mr. Yeah, missing missing. In, missing in an action. It's like, what well, is that meant to mean that they're kind of like, if you just change your mind, or is it kind of like a melancholic, like, no, no let's no, just it, say... No, no, he's, he's not saying they are missing. He's saying the record should reflect that, because yeah. to say they're dead is not right, but to try and explain what happened wouldn't be of much comfort to their families, mm. yeah. I think. And again, Shatner sells it. I mean, he, he skirts overacting a few times, but sort of stays the right side of it. Yeah, I mean... Again, I think um, this is something that, that people kind of attribute very much to Wrath of Khan. Um, but at the end of the film, I mean, yeah, there, there is the kind of this what happened and then there's the kind of the kind of jolliness of it at the end. But this is really Star Trek back. Yes. Spock says, I'm not going to go back. I'm going to stay with the crew. McCoy's all joyful about him delivering his baby. Yeah. Kirk's now... His... There's women spread eagled at a party somewhere for him, but, <laughs> but he's pleased to be back on the Enterprise. Exactly. Everyone's in the three are in their place, yeah. and Star Trek is back. 
But again, that's us coming with our, our modern sort of franchise mentality. Everything I've re- read around this film is, I don't think they, they thought about this film that way. But then again, they would have if it was a TV series, which is where yeah. the script starts. Yeah. I think this is probably just like what the, what the original script said and just didn't, couldn't think of a better ending. So I thought, let's leave it like that. You know, and they don't think they quite realised that the way it kind of just it finished itself off was very televisual. It's very like you know, yes, it did. could have needed like a little bit more, you know, maybe another scene or, or to reflect of what's happened or something. You know, it just uh, it just felt like. But, well, that's jo- but I do like, but I do like the joy of being on the ship because you got to yeah. remember they joined the ship in peril. Even Scotty, who's probably the most consistently I love my fucking ship of the whole crew is nervous because it isn't ready. Spock's distracted the whole time. Kirk's unsettled a lot of the time because he doesn't know what he's dealing with, doesn't know his ship. The rest of them are completely underused anyway. So the idea that, like, they're suddenly... We see a bit of the joy that they're there. We see it again in later films. I mean, Kirk just goes, you know, to give the head, and he's like, that away. Mm. Well, that that's that's a bit like they carry on at the end of Star Trek Six, which you may or may not have seen yet, Becca. But yeah, it, you know, at the end of that, they they go for basically a bit of a joyride at the end, <laughs> or, of even Star, or even Star Trek hey. Four, where you get where they get the new Enterprise at the end of Star Trek. Spoiler yes. um, at the end of Star Trek Four. But again, I mean, I mean, you get the the huge kind of ending where Decker and Ilya join, and everything kind of the cloud kind of dissipates and where it goes wherever it needs to go and then you get that lovely shot of the enterprise emerging from it all um, oh that is a lovely shot yeah yeah and then um and then and then yeah from that you have the little denouement and you have it's a bit tiny bit kind of downbeat where they talk about it all and then kind of up and down and then i guess you it's kind of okay let's get this thing wrapped up. I don't, I, I kind of, anything else would be to me kind of extraneous to that. And then and not only that, we're already well over the two hour mark. Yeah. And then you have that beautiful shot of the enterprise as it goes to warp and it kind of, and it, as it glides over the camera. And it's, yeah. it's again, it's, it's a shot that's reused in, in the Rafa Khan in the, yeah, the, you, the you in shots. You will notice them now when Becca, yeah. for example, because you haven't, not only have you not seen the films, but you're watching them in fairly short, order i i didn't realize for years and then you re-watch it and you go well that's the bit where kurt goes to the enterprise that's the shot from i've seen that, that before um yeah. you'll see it in later films as well there's there's bits but in the world is not enough when they there's bits shots in generations and gone with series there are bits where you re-see i mean generations there's a klingon ship in that and you you see a shot from an earlier film yeah okay. it's I'll not keep an eye out for it. it's not uncommon but it's i don't have a problem with it because i'd rather i feel that way about the new films Star Trek isn't, isn't isn't really about action first and foremost. Yes, it might be about a, a spectacle. I think this film has shown us that that if you're expect if you're exploring something wondrous, then show us it's wondrous. Yeah. But at the same time, they labour the point. It's my favourite film in the series, and I think even Charlie considers it the best in the series. Is made next week on a TV budget. You exactly. don't. I just think cut your bloody cloth. Stop trying to make Star Trek Star Wars. In yeah. size, because it isn't. Yeah, and that's what helped it was using you reusing shots like that. Yeah. In in a very kind of um, kind of repurposed innovative way, really helped keep the budget down on Rathacon so they could do what they did in other places. Well, I, I think what helped it was with the budget they had to come more focus on the story rather than like everything else. I think that's key to making 
the best possible film is to focus on the story itself rather than try and focus on special effects or who you can who you can get, you know, any sort of clever little twists or like or gimmicks. It's it is focused do we have a good story and that will trump anything that you can throw out throw out at a film, essentially. In my opinion Absolutely. anyway. And yeah, and then you it's setting the template for Star Trek to a point where we can talk about next week about um, whether or not that was a good thing. The Wrath of Khan did uh, bring into vogue a sort of very personified antagonist. Absolutely. And this film doesn't, and because they're all in different uniforms and it's set 12 years earlier and never referenced again. And very slow in pace as well. And And then the next three are loosely a trilogy as well. So... Uh, which I think a lot of people don't really realise, but if you look at Spock in those films, it's a trilogy. Yeah. And um, so this film becomes a bit of a red-headed stepchild, and a lot of people... I've heard people on podcasts saying you can skip it and go straight to the second one. Well, you can, actually. But, no, don't. Personally, it's people. worth it. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, yes, there certainly is that, that trilogy structure there, and it helps that... Um, Certain the kind of the same people were involved over that thing that were the more in this one, but I think I still think this is an kind of important step to establishing that mood again or re-establishing the mood from the TV series, uh, which continues in Wrath of Khan, and this is kind of showing the stakes and what happened to kind of root to get there again. But next week we are looking at characters that are allowed to age, and that adds a dimension yeah. to them that isn't here. Absolutely. But um, I had a better time with this than, than I've ever had with it before, genuinely. And I'm really glad I've, I've watched it because, it's again, it's one of those films that you tend to... Well, as a as a not someone who's necessarily a fan of Star Trek, it's not necessarily the film I would jump to watch. You know, it would be the more palatable ones like uh, Khan or um, Undiscovered Country. Or I thought you'd struggle with this because, I mean, I don't want to... I, I certainly don't want to pigeonhole you as an action guy because even though you would like action, yeah. that is you can't handle anything that isn't. Yeah, which yeah. Isn't no, it, it's my but, preference, uh, well, but yeah. You have a big problem with overlong films. Mm. I, it's not it's not strictly their length, although they do have to justify being over two hours for you. I, but um, this film does take a lot of time that you could argue it doesn't it, need. I, 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 think, I don't think I necessarily have... I mean, I, I, yes, I do. I think I'm more of a problem with today's um, idea of length, but um, I... See, there's a difference between... Uh, a film being too long. Well, when I criticise it, I think most most of the, most of the time they're trying to overfill it with extra extra scenes, extra plot points that don't need to be there. It's like we just cut all that out. Why not just make it ninety minutes? The thing is with this, when it's something like that, that has a story that's quite simplistic and just tries to expand it and trying to get game atmosphere. I'm a lot more. I feel a lot more better about that because. That, I can see the purpose of why it's long because it's like it's building up action, action, uh, not building up action, building up atmosphere and tension, or just lavishing in its you know its own glory. You know, like like look at that. Yeah, we look look at that. Something that we we made the really this, shot. This did have great. to be a one off. Let's this just look at it. Would, this wouldn't have run much longer if they'd kept making versions of this. Yeah, it, it did have to change. It is too languid. And I think you would. It, it doesn't draw in enough of the quote unquote general public. It might have done as a one off because it's back after so many years and we're at hi- the height of the sci fi craze. 
But I don't know if a 1984-85 version of this film would have done very well at all. I, I, I agree. I think I think it is a bit long, as I said. I think it does need needs a bit trimming, but I wouldn't trim too much, you know. Um, and so I, 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 yeah, I, I prefer a film to be too long in this way. I think in terms of um, when I, usually when I criticise films for being too long, it's because they just try to cram too much in. They like try and like fill out like unnecessary scenes, and they just think, oh, what are you doing? Just you know, you know, cut cut your darlings kind of thing. I think this is one of those films that because it starts as a TV script, if you cut it down too much, yeah, people it will just increase that. People will look at it and go, why is this not on telly? Yeah, yeah. Um, but in terms of when it comes to this, I think they were still trying to find their feet almost because, you know, they've just done a TV show. They never really adapted it for film. So I think they were still trying to play with that idea. I don't think anything, this hasn't been done on this scale, at least not for sci-fi, uh, from TV to film. I don't think there's been many examples. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know. But I think this is probably like the more high concept and in terms of like the fan base, they're not quite sure what the fans wanted and what will make it a success. Um so, well, I don't know. Holiday on the buses. <laughs> <laughs> Mutiny on the buses. Yeah. Steptoe and Son, the movie. Come on. Rising Dan. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Porridge. Yeah. <laughs> Loads of fucking big hitters. <laughs> uh, um, but I definitely get the sense that they, they were finding their feet in the, uh, while doing this film. They weren't. They were kind of. Kind of like doing Star Trek, like 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 Kurt Wood would just be like, oh, we'll just boldly go and just like experiment. Let's just see what just see what happens. Let's just you know take a chance on it. It's a um, brave film in a lot of ways. Yeah. Becca, what did you think? Um, yeah, that's a um, interesting concept about sort of a lot of fans saying, oh, you know, skip skip the first film and go straight for it. I'm sort of a bit of a completist. Um, as I say, I'm sort of new. I'm aware of the Star Trek world, but I'm just kind of new to this particular film series, having seen the generations and the new films. But um, no, I kind of I struggled with um, the pacing of it. Um, I think some some of the script there was a bit a bit kind of a bit strange. Um, but I generally I sort of enjoyed it. Um, I found the biggest problem I had was the relationship between Ilya and Decca. Um, you don't need it. It's really random, really distracting. There's no point to it whatsoever. It's setting um, up a future TV show, isn't it? Well, it, it does, as I'll tell you in a moment. Um, but apart from that, yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of spoiler it's, alert for fun facts. Spoiler alert for fun facts, folks. It gets um, fun. I know what the fact is, though. It gets even funnerer. <laughs> even funnerer. They're creating new words on the show, folks. Um, I don't know where I'm going to rank it just yet. Um, I think, like, like you do, I'm going to struggle coming to rank these movies, I think. Um, just because from, from what I've read about them, they are. I, I wouldn't know how to compare this one to Generations or even to, you know, to, to Beyond. You know, I've got no clue. Um, but no, overall, I, I enjoyed it. It was quite slow. It just takes time. It looks beautiful. Um, some of the visual effects are the most stunning that I've seen of sort of late seventies, early eighties cinema. But I, I enjoyed it. I would watch it again, uh, and I can't wait for next week. Um, I think one of the biggest disappointments about this film is there's no decent kind of look behind the scenes. There's kind of bits and pieces on various DVDs and that, but I've never seen one um, that kind of got close to really showing how much kind of chaos there was on this film, how unfinished it went out and the kind of the drama with Paramount wanting it out at a certain date and needing to hit that date. Um, there is a book uh, which is just released last year, I think called Return to Tomorrow, uh, which basically is kind of like an oral history 
of that particular period that's taken from tons of interviews and quotes and stuff. Does Shatner um, not mention it? Like, because he's written like a few books on it as well, hasn't he? Like his memoirs and things like that. I'm sure. I'm sure he has to some degree. Um, but just as kind of like an overall look, because Shatner's would be very focused on him as well. Of course. Uh, but as an overall look, I mean, I, I, I love the idea of the film. I love the ambition of the film. I love the way it sets up our characters as people that we can't necessarily trust. And it's only kind of when it comes together at the end that we kind of see them working together and we see the whole Ilya Decker thing together and how that plays off as something that kind of shows about Star Trek and new life, where a new life form is is essentially created from these two bonding together. Um, And again, the whole kind of the need, which is not only a human need of, of being able to want to know about who you are and where you come from and who your creator is, but also a kind of a robotic need almost and something that's kind of, it's almost kind of mechanical existentialism, which I love, and also the very human need um, of the kind of romance and wanting to be together as one. And that whole concept coming together while not, developed especially well uh, to in the uh, in the first kind of act first and second act of the film i was like they really don't really get me wrong i don't i'm not you know saying well, oh, no, no, it's, it's just because those those two characters are so really underserved that that, yeah. that kind of aspect doesn't really come across well but i think it's as i said Absolutely. like this film there's such a massive you know sense of wonder about this film and that's the thing yeah. i love about 2001 it's so philosophical like where do we come from where are we going um and just the fact that you've got these two characters who are just so weak and there's so much potential in their relationship but it's just not really it's not really served properly at all and that's what spoils yeah. it for me sadly but i, I agree uh, with everything you're saying charlie for yeah, sure yeah and yeah like you said there's a lot of wonder in the film and it is absolutely beautiful um and yeah the, the music is just astonishing um and uh you have to get past the main theme and i don't mean the main thing's bad it's just not to my taste but yeah. there's, there's, a earworm, rich, there's a rich there's a richness to this score though I've yeah, in, my, this, in my like in my head all the time. I just like can't get out of my face. You know, it were. If if you if you watch it again and you listen to certainly the the Spock scenes and the Vija scenes and you hear their music kind of intertwining together, it's really clever what happens there. Um, as you think about kind of Spock and his kind of obsession with Vija and both having fairly kind of logical minds, um, that's really interesting. But yeah, and I I. I just really, really love this film, um, especially as as a Star Trek fan. And uh, it's, yeah, it, objectively, it's, it's not flawless uh, by any means, and it has issues, but, um, yeah, I, it's just, it's beautiful, and it's my idea of, of what I love about Star Trek. Yeah, I really, I really get that when I, when I watched it. I figured that this is pretty much what Star Trek fans would, would like, you know, would want, really, from, from a film, because it's basically... Compass what is a Star Trek episode? What the themes that the type of themes that you, that um, you would want in a Star Trek episode, but with all the grandness, lushness of of a cinema, you know, put in there as well. It's just you know, it. it I think it is like the, the almost like an ideal, the closest ideal to an actual Star Trek film. I do feel a bit incomplete not knowing some facts about it, though, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as long as they're fun. I mean, I'm ready for a bit of fun, you know. I am. In fact, I would go as far as to say, this isn't a wormhole. I'm just pleased to see you. Come on, Carl. Check back. 50, 50, 50. 
a wormhole in my trousers. <laughs> okay, fun fact number one. Uh, my good Chuck buddy, who should go nameless. I shall blame him for any of these that fall down. Um, Sorry, we've already audited them a bit. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to blame him shit, anyway. You've got shitloads wrong, mate, but carry on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not talking to him on track again. Yeah. I love him dearly, but no. <laughs> so obviously we hear Vulcan and Klingon spoken at the beginning. Um, obviously those languages have, have gone on to be created by other people. Um, but the, the words themselves are devised by James Dewan, Scotty himself. Um, fun fact number two. Obviously I'm not too keen on Decker and earlier in this film, but obviously they went on to become Riker and Troy in the next generation. They were used as the basis of. They didn't literally. Yeah, turn no, 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 no. Did she, did, did she become? Yeah. But no, it was. That, that's it was, that was, that was um, the relationship was the basis of that. So. Yeah, which is why I said during the show that that, that when um, uh, Spock is is communicating psychically with Beja, it suits the plot of this film. But in terms of character development and what the character became, it, it could have been Ilia because Ilia is Troy effectively. In fact, she's a Delta, as in Delta. And yeah. Troy is Beta, Betazoid. So, the, the, yeah, the, the, she's a reimagining of the same character. I think it's quite interesting, but with more hair. Well, I don't know. She's dressed all the time, I see. Oh, I see, on a red, yeah. <laughs> Not very appropriately for a uh, for a Starfleet vessel there, is she? No. <laughs> I, I, haven't, I haven't talked about the costumes in this film. They're very strange. in space, do you? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, my God. How about number three? Uhura's earpiece is the only original prop from the original series to make it into this new 79 film. Yeah, because Shatner was wearing a fresh wig for this one. <laughs> the sideburns were different lengths every single scene. <laughs> I was it's, almost like they it. did, it's almost like they didn't shoot it all on the same day. <gasps> Fun fact number four. The trailers for this film were narrated by Orson Welles, no less. I'm surprised he didn't, I'm surprised he didn't voice the uh, the cloud. Well, he, he did end up voicing the, uh, the in the Transformers movie. Yeah. Yeah, it was like yeah, his, that, last, his last but, film. Yeah, but that's got gravitas. <laughs> <laughs> Fun fact number five. This film was nominated for Oscars in set design, well, production design, visual effects and score, but it was beaten by Alien and the visual stakes and literary months and all that jazz. So yeah, they lost out on the Oscars, but hey-ho, we've got a really good Star Trek film. Sci-fi so. never really um, work, works in, well, never really won much in Oscars really, has, has it? It's never really fared well, sci-fi. No. Chris, don't bring the mood down, because I was just thinking, that's fun, folks! Well, I think that was a thorough and deep review with plenty of sober analysis of Star Trek The Motion Picture. But it's over now, Becca, which means... Do you expect us to talk or return to Star Trek 2, The Wrath of Khan? The return of Ricardo Montalban. That is part of the official title. <laughs> and Peter <laughs> Shatner, and Leonard Dimoy, and that bird that's going to be in cheers. I have a fun fact for Star Trek 2, so you can have that for next week. Right. Does that mean Becca's only got to like, research four, or does she do five and we give people a bonus? I say bonus. I give lots of people bonus. I, I've got one now. <laughs> Good night, folks! <laughs>